Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up, what's up? Oh, what's up? What's up? What is up? Is that Ray Winston in the Point Break remake? Do you think that would work? Well, funnily enough, the the weird thing about Ray Winston's performance in the Point Break remake is shut it, shut it, is that he it's almost like he hasn't quite decided whether he's doing an American accent or not. So for most of the film, it's like shut it, get out. I once said to him, "You're in my chair, get out of my chair." <laughs> to his face, I did that. And then every now and then, it drifts into give that an American twang. Oh, okay. Well, uh. Shut it, y'all. No, that doesn't sound... No. It's, it's like, it's weird. It's, it, it, it's, it's as if, like, every other scene, he's remembered that the character... But, but the characters in Europe anyway, I just couldn't... I really couldn't figure it out. It, I couldn't figure out why he kept sort of drifting off into this strange American burr. But he did. I like that word, but you don't often hear the word "burr" associated with America. Unless you're the director of Pride and Prejudice, in which case your name is Burr Steers, so you probably hear the name quite a lot. Uh, Ian Collier's been on. He's from uh, Littleton in Christchurch yes. in New Zealand. Oh, right, fine. Christchurch, New Zealand, yes. Not Christchurch down the road from where I live. No, no, that's right. It's Christchurch NZ. NZ. They've got... They've got no one must have been named after the other. One imagines. Yeah, I imagine that they were named after us. I don't think it was that because uh, there's loads of places in both Australia and New Zealand that are named after places in the UK, aren't there? Yes, and America, Uh, particularly these. Particularly America. Do you know what New York used to be called? New Amsterdam. Well done. How do you know that? Because Because of the Elvis Costello song. I just know it. Oh, really? It's general knowledge. No, it's not general knowledge. I only I only knew it because of that Elvis Costello song. Well, you should have gone to a proper uni. That's anyway. Way back when, Ian Collier, he's from Littleton in Christchurch. In New, in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, my, he says, uh, I'm an LTL and an FTE. My best mates, John and Melanie Hunter, recently emigrated to my adopted home here of Christchurch, New Zealand, so they've now joined me in becoming colonial commoners. Emigrating anywhere in your 40s is very brave. And while they are loving their new home, it can be a challenge to make new friends at first. Christchurch doesn't appear to have an obvious film club as such. But I'm pretty certain there are plenty of wittertainees in the city. So I was wondering if any of your tech-savvy listeners with a talent for app creation might have a bash at creating a colonial commoner app to help us out. Dating apps seem to have done very well in using GPS to help uh, people locate potential like-minded souls, so it shouldn't be too hard. Perhaps a cheery hello to Jason Isaacs might sound on the device of anyone with the app installed and activated, making them easily identifiable to fellow members of the, uh, the church. I think that's quite a nice because there are you do hear about these various apps on various phones where if someone <laughs> like minded if and is after the same kind You're of thing. You're thinking of grinder, aren't you? I'm not sure what I'm thinking <laughs> of. You know, it sets off a beep or an alert or uh, hello. That's right. So maybe there's a is there a wittertainment version of that? Do you think? I, I'm sure they could be, but you'd have to write the, the you'd have to film be grinder. Ri- film can we can we call it that? No. Anyway, okay. listen, it's nothing to do with us, but I'm sure if someone wants to do that, you know, that would be entertainment. And we certainly do have quite a lot of listeners in Christchurch. I remember when they had that terrible earthquake, we had people getting in touch with us then. So, uh, yes, it, we are we are big. In, can I just. We should do a show. Why don't we do a show there? Yeah, we've had this conversation. 
we've said yes and then we look behind the glass and then robin says no because it's something to do with it's not a it's not a a, a proper use of the li- license fee payers money oh he said that when I suggested... Uh, uh, like that executive hot tub that he had installed is fine. But... I suggested a, a trip around the restaurants of the Commonwealth. <laughs> did and, you? Yeah, and he turned that down did too. <laughs> when did the colonial commoner thing start? What, did, what, what was the beginning of that? I don't know. It was, it was a, it's a, a pastiche of the ad, of the TV ad, isn't it? There's nothing, nothing so common as a colonial commoner. There's oh, you can't, can't get fitted in a quick fit. That's what it was. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I think fine. it's something to do Okay, that, good. Anyway. Okay. In that case, that means that that hasn't yet passed into the mists of time, so we have to keep going with it. We have to, you have to keep going with any gag until such time as no one can remember where, where it began. Excellent. This is a very, very good idea. This is like an on-air production meeting. That's how it works. Russell Roberts, grade five piano and oboe, but only just by one mark. After a recent... Oh, well done. So it's 101? I don't know. That's the way the grades used to work. You had to get 100 to get the grade, and then it was a bit like 120 was merit, or up to 120 was merit, and then distinct. After, I don't know. I, I only know because I failed grade four French. By one mark? By two marks. I got 98. So what grade? So you got, I got grade three on French, French horn. horn. Yes, but grade three French horn basically consisted of they stand you in a room with a piano, a drum kit, and a French horn and ask you to identify which one is the French horn. Grade four actually involves playing. And um, one of the things with the French horn is it only has three keys. Well, it's got four if you count the, 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 the key change key. And do you know how sight reading works? Well, when you look at it and you look at it and you play it, okay? Yeah. Well, on a French horn, if you play an open thing, you can have one. It can be any. It can be a C. It can be an E. It can be a G. You know, any number of notes. So when I started doing the sight reading thing, I just started on the wrong note. So consequently, everything that I did in the sight reading was complete rubbish. It was all over the place. And at the end of it, I said to the examiner, do you mind if I do it again? And he said... Well, that wouldn't be sight reading, would it? He didn't say, I once had a whim and had to obey it to buy a French horn in a second-hand shop. I polished it up and I started to play it in spite of the neighbours who begged me to stop. No. He didn't say that. Where does that come from? It's Flanders and Swan. Oh, I'm shocked I don't know that. And sung to the tune of um, Mozart's... Polished it up and started to play it in spite of the neighbours who begged me to stop. It's fantastic. Can we play some of that at the end of this? You know, the, the, it's, it's, we're going to get to the point. This show is actually not going to exist. It's just going to be somebody playing a Flanders and Swan LP. Yes, that would be that would be <laughs> that rather, would be fine. That'd be rather fine. Anyway, Russell Roberts, Grade Five Piano. If we've got time to read this, after a recent long haul trip where I was fortunate enough to be part of a delegation from the Royal College of Physicians providing training to junior doctors in Myanmar, as that country emerges from its long years of military dictatorship. I thought you'd be interested in a further case... As you know from Rambo 5 or whichever one it was. (laughs) Relating to the phenomenon of altitude-related lachrymosity. My movie selection during the long hours at 36,000 feet were, in order of increasing lachrymosity, The Martian, an occasional snuffle but generally very funny, Everest felt a bit manipulated but the pregnant Kira back home in New Zealand did its work, Room... Wow, what a film. Blimey. And finally, the utterly delightful Me, Earl and the Dying Girl. Okay, yeah. It was about 90 minutes from landing in Manchester, just as the credits of Earl were rolling, and admittedly with the benefit of a a glass of a rather delightful Bordeaux, that the call that (laughs) every every flying physician dreads came through. Is there a doctor on board? Could you make yourself known to the cabin crew? So there I was, not only exhausted after traversing the globe and feeling guilty about the glass of Redders just consumed, but as I made myself known to the cabin crew, I was still a blubbering wreck with tears flowing and speech not entirely composed. Perhaps you will not be surprised to learn uh, that the airline preferred 
uh, only to get help from doctors in possession of their credentials, and I was not, and in any case had already secured the services of another passenger medic, so I was free to return to my seat and compose myself. They would call me if they needed further assistance, which they didn't. So a warning to fellow medical wit attainees. If you travel with your medical credentials and are vulnerable to ALS, A-A-L-S, it would be best to stick to the light entertainment section of the video on demand selection just in case you're called into action. The light entertainment section of the video usually consists of reruns of Ab Fab. Yeah, that's true. But also, I suspect Russell had enjoyed the the Redders, as he described it, just a little bit too much. Have you ever have you ever enjoyed the Redders? No. <laughs> who, who actually refers to red wine as Redders, unless you're on Test Match Special? It does sound like one of those kind of things. I'll have a sharpener and then a bottle of your finest Redders. A sharpener. The sharpener is a great word. That is used far too little. It's used far too little because people now realise that it, it, it doesn't sharpen you up. What it does is drunkens you down. Dullens you but, down. Yes. But there used to, there certainly used to be the case that people would have a pre-show sharpen. I mean, even even in the days that I've worked in radio, and I've never done it because I'm I'm terrified of the idea that if you have a, if you have a drink in you before you broadcast, you'll immediately go on the air and become Roger Melly, the man on the telly. Yeah, I think it's advisable. No, no, no I think it's yeah. more than advisable. I think it's an absolute rule that you don't do it. However, I have been on programs in which people have had a sharpener beforehand. Which were those shows? They were review programs. On the television, like yeah, I mean, in in the ancient past, but um, you know, there would be there would be refreshments provided, and some people would partake of the refreshments. Newsnight review, that kind of thing. I couldn't possibly name a, a, a particular it doesn't show. Doesn't exist anymore, so you can. No, which just you know, I've done a lot of review programs over the years, and I started doing them back in the you know whenever it was in the dawn of time, and certainly before then, the hospitality trolley would be available and would not be completely neglected by everybody. Well, there was a famous uh, Graham Norton episode with Matt Damon and Hugh Bonneville and Bill Murray, right. where they were clearly refreshed. They were clearly refreshed, and I think they'd edited out, edited out a lot of the refreshment being taken. Oh, really? And it was completely hilarious. It was like the best Graham Norton show ever. Oh, really? It was good because I have to say, it was that... for the Monuments Men, and it was just, and halfway through, okay. Hugh Bonneville just gets up and leaves. And he said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the toilet. And then when he comes back, he's on the phone. I mean, the whole thing is chaotic. Matt Damon said it was the most fun he'd ever had on a television. Okay, although generally, I have to say, my feeling about it is is that people people a little squiffy are less funny than than they... I mean, it's that thing about being the only sober person in a room full of drunks, (laughs) for want of a better word. Like Oliver Reed, for example. Well, I've never been in a room with Oliver Reed. Okay. But Here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the, well, he went on review shows. No, I know. No, I, although there is always a question about whether or not he was putting on an act. I mean, that that famous After Dark one, you know, the one in which he leapt over the sofa and it was all that. The question was, how much was it an act? And there just, are people I know who know, and Ken Russell always said he put all that stuff on. Just before we start the show for real, which now it seems to be a very, very good time, apparently, because Flanders and Swan are all poised and ready. Oh, you work, cool. Okay. So I can't remember what this track is called. Ill Wind is what it's called. Okay, we'll just, <laughs> okay. So we'll just play a little bit. You'll recognise the opening because I've already told yeah. you the line. So here we go. I once had a whim and I had to obey it to buy a French horn in a second-hand shop. I polished it up and I started to play it in spite <laughs> of the neighbours who begged me to stop. <laughs> now already you're hooked, aren't you? I am. Okay. This <laughs> I think this is a work of genius. Okay. To sound my horn, I had to develop my arm push or I found my horn. <laughs> Was a bit of a devil to play, so artfully wound to give you a sound, a beautiful sound, so rich and round. And there's nice little pauses so that we can talk oh, over the hours I had to spend before I mastered it in the end. 
But that was yesterday, and just today I looked in the usual place. There was the case, but the horn itself was missing. I think you, I think you should do a skiffle. Where can it have gone? <laughs> Haven't you? Hasn't anyone seen my horn? <laughs> so where can it have gone? What a blow! Now I know I'm unable to play my allegro. <laughs> I bet you a quid, somebody did. Knowing I found a concerto and wanted to play it, afraid of my talent at playing the horn. For early to date of my utter dismay, it had managed to wait like the dew in the morn. <laughs> Can we get all of this in? This is just brilliant. How much longer in I've lost that horn. I know I was using it yesterday. I've lost that horn. Lost that horn. Found that horn. Gone. Gone. <laughs> <laughs> Party folk whose party jokes pretending to hunt with the quad. Party is a word that too few people use. I've got, got a big finish. It's coming. I mean, return Don't worry. that horn. Oh, where is the devil who pinched my horn? I shall tell the police I want that French horn back. Should we do part two in the end of the podcast? I miss its music more and more and more. Without that horn, I'm feeling sad Okay, so, so what we're going to do is he's building up to a big finish. So let's fade him out, let's fade him out, and then... We'll just do the big finish at the end. He's got a big finale. So i tell you the worst thing about the French horn, apart from the way I played it. Briefly, then. When you play the French horn, spit goes into the horn. And because it's a circle, the spit sort of, you know, uh, catches in it like a great big tube. And then in order to unspit it... You have to turn the horn round upside down. So you yeah. turn it round once, and you yeah. can you can hear it, or then you turn it round yeah. a second time, and it's yeah. a cavalcade of spit. Here's the show. This is the type of radio energy I like. It's Owen Wilson. We're <laughs> just flagging that up at the beginning, are we? Yeah. Well, very good. So Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller uh, will be here in about half an hour's time. So this conversation. He sounded very relaxed. Well, there's the thing. In this interview, which you will hear after the two thirty news, sport, travel, weather, and fat stock prices. You, what? What, what you get is Ben Stiller, who is right on it, very sharp. You know, he has co-written this thing. He's directed it, it yeah. you know, and, and, and he stars in it and he's leaning forward. Yeah. And then there's Owen Wilson, who is slightly relaxed. Okay, what's happening now? And then right at the end, he says, what you just, what you just heard this is the kind of movie conversation I like. Uh, anyway, they were good company. And you can hear uh, the Zoolander 2 interview after 2.30, plus... Mark's review, plus reviews of all these other films. We're going to be reviewing uh, Deadpool. We're going to be reviewing The Survivalist. We're going to be reviewing uh, A Bigger Splash. Uh, we may get round to Albert and the Chipmunks, The Road Chip. Does everything have an up inflection at the end this week? I've gone all Australian. Why would that be? I don't, I don't know why that would be. Actually, that's a terrible accent. We used to, we used to have uh, uh, an Antipodean who worked on the programme who would correct... Our Australian New Zealand inflation. Remember this? I know. Seeks and six. I can't. And now I now can't remember which which way round it was. Doctor Simon McCormick is going to go first. Defencing champion and flip flop runner. Can I just say, in my defence, I was never a champion, but you were definitely a flip flop runner. Uh, well, you, you may not have been a champion, but I was definitely a loser. And I, I just fenced a bit. Yes. Uh, I'm is a long video still available. I'm a long term wittertainee. Oh, all right, Karen, just uh, as if don't, as if don't not, worry. If, you don't, if there's something I say and you're not interested in, just, just talk across me as if it doesn't matter. You know at home when you interrupt everybody and they just carry on mm -hmm. that. 
I'm a long-term Wichitania and emailer. My daughter made the comment about well-chopped vegetables being like good editing. So I remember that. Thank you, Simon. In my day job as a doctor, I've spent this week looking after Greg James on Radio 1 uh, on his Gregathlon. Greg Gregathlon. He's doing this for sport relief. He's doing roughly... A, I mean, this is quite extraordinary. A lot of people know about this. There's lots of stuff online. The poor guy looks in a bad way, but he's doing it all for sport relief. What's he doing? He's doing a... He's doing a mile of swimming. This is... All the time, right? Mile of swimming, 30 to 40 miles of cycling, and nine mile run every day. And as of the how time, many days? The, as of the time you start this week's show, all that should be left is the final run, which goes off at 2.15. Is there any chance we could get the Wittering fraternity to get out their phones and to text Greg to 70703, which will give £3 to Sport Relief and add to the £408,000 raised by the end of Thursday? The money is spent 50 50 on UK work and work overseas. Yeah, it sounds... In case you're in any doubt that he's suffering, I've attached a photo of how he looked when he finished his swim in freezing water on Wednesday morning. Either of you fancy a challenge? No, thanks very much. Mark might, because he's strong like that. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not absolutely... But I'll, I'll certainly do the texting thing. Have you got the picture of him looking... No, I've, no you haven't no. printed it out. Okay, fine. We can put it on the... We, can we will do it. Anyway, what, what Greg James is doing... Yes. Uh, ...is genuinely amazing. And if you watch any of the clips which Radio 1 are putting up uh, online... You, your heart will go out to him because he looks completely gone. Anyway, so all the money going to this fantastic cause. If you text Greg to 70703, £3 to Sport Relief, and we'll add to the £408,000 which uh, Simon and his team have already helped. Does he look gone, gone like a turkey in the corn? Yes, Mark, he does. Craig, who's a sports writer in Edinburgh, wants to... I'll just say the Twin Peak fans, you know... They loved it. They loved that moment, but not you. No. Uh, Simon, I thought I'd provide a short but succinct review from a young Scottish footballer. This is about the film Dirty Grandpa. Ah. And also to inquire as to whether, off the back of the Greenock Morton PA having his emails read out on the show, whether there's room for a football corner in your esteemed church. Anyway, the guy in question is John Sutar, who recently made the move from Dundee United to Hearts. So you were probably following this on all the transfer day speculation. I was. I was. I, you couldn't get me away from a radio. So anyway, John went from Dundee United to Hearts. Having been told in the morning that he was unlikely to go anywhere, he went to see Dirty Grandpa starring, in inverted commas, says Craig, <laughs> Robert De Niro and Zac Efron. While in the cinema, he received a call telling him he had to get to Edinburgh as soon as possible to complete the deal. Well, he took the call while he was in the cinema. Yeah. After a fee had finally been agreed for his services. So John, unlike so many other poor saps, at least got a decent excuse to exit the cinema, even if he obviously did break the code of conduct. Yeah, he did. Did he answer the phone in the cinema? Yeah. When asked what he thought of the film at his press conference following his unveiling as a Hearts player, he said it was horrendous. (laughs) (laughs) So therefore... Uh, not forgiven for, no. the, for the code break because you know you can't you can't start making exceptions for the quality of the film. I'm afraid it, a code is a code is a code. That's the way it is. So you so you could legitimately argue if you've taken your phone in to Dirty Grandpa, you turn the phone off because that's what you do, mm-hmm. and then if you're you don't want to leave because you spent the money, maybe it's more edifying to turn on your phone and to call your friends and text people and look at uh, Snapchat. I sat through Keith Lemon, the movie, and I did not turn my phone on. So I'm sorry. There's not. There's no excuse. You're setting us a fine moral example. Well, no, it's just that you can't. Because if you start, if you start saying, oh, well, quality allows you to do it, then everyone will say, oh, well, I saw that Lawrence of Arabia. It got a bit boring, so I turned my phone on. You can't have a, you know, it's, 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 it's a real, one rule for all. Excellent. That's very good. Now, James Galloway wants uh, wants to mention um, for the James first Galloway MP. 
No. No, that's George Galloway. Oh, fine. <laughs> not an MP. No, not an MP. But, but you knew who I meant. Bloke in a hat. <laughs> Him. James Galloway, nothing to do with... James Galway either. No, no, no. That's he's not him. He's not. Sorry, my brain just went into a complete. For the first time ever today, I'm going to be listening to your show live uh, on Radio Five Live. I've been a member of the church since March 2013. I've always listened to the podcast via my fruit-based product app. I never thought I'd be able to listen to your show live, as I've been living in South Korea for the past two years, and the time differences don't really enable me to listen at a reasonable hour. I've spread entertainment amongst a few members of the expat community here in Seoul. My girlfriend was roaring with laughter. As we listened to Mark's impression of Nick Nolte when he was reviewing a walk in the woods, the rest of the subway looked at us with disdain. But for this week's show, I'm back home in Kent for a brief respite from the hustle and bustle of Seoul, seeing family and friends and eating as many cheese and onion rolls, scotch eggs and hot cross buns as possible. I also got a large Battenberg cake because I, for one, love it. I'm cleaning out my childhood belongings as my childhood home is being put up for sale. It's a sad time for me and I'm feeling quite mawkish about going through everything, but a commodian rant will definitely make my day. Hello to Jason and thanks for the memories. Now, I don't know whether there's a... Is there a rant? Is, I mean, I know you don't perform to order. No. Or anything. I don't think we're having a ranty show. But you never quite know what... never quite know, but I don't think so. Box Office Top 10 has uh, Daddy's Home at number 10. Um, yeah, I'm... I quite like. I mean, I quite like How Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, exactly. I quite like quite like Mark Wahlberg and quite like Will Ferrell. Um, but uh, actually, no, it's not true. I don't quite like Will Ferrell. Yeah, it wasn't very good. Well, you either right. do quite like. Will well, the thing is, I like. There are moments in which I do like Will Ferrell. There are like you know, he's. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills, but all that stuff. I do. I do. I do like him, but I didn't. I'm thinking it's, we should have some James Galway on the show a bit later on. A little bit of flaut magic. What do you think? Is it fl- is it flute? He's a flute. He's a flautist. He's a flautist. He is. That's what he is. Um, uh, then we have Point Break at number nine. It's funny because I never thought Point Break needed remaking. And then I watched the remake of it and then I thought, no, that's right. I never thought Point Break needed remaking. It's it's strange because on the one hand, it has all this sort of extreme sports stuff in it. And you think well, this, you know, vertiginous thrills and this this kind of this kind of rocket powered stuff. Why aren't I interested? And the reason you're not interested is because the characters are very, very flat packed and just have none of the engagement that the originals of the, that the Catherine Bigelow film. The, the one thing I would say, however, is... I've read a few reviews which have talked about um, the, the film having too much CGI in it. And I read one review that said, oh, in this ridiculous wing uh, suiting sequence that, you know, I don't even believe that wing suiting exists. As far as I understand, and I stand to be corrected, I mean, I've seen a film of them shooting that sequence. It's not CGI. They really are these guys jumping off this thing and flying. I mean, obviously editing and all the rest of it. But there's a lot of things wrong with that film. But actually, the the stunt sequences aren't them. As far as the stunt sequences are quite physical. It's just everything else. James Tomlinson from our Facebook page. Uh, this is one of the worst action films I've ever seen. And I'd like to say I've seen my fair share. <laughs> it's a slap in the face to the original. Yeah, an array yeah. of extreme sports set pieces with a dreadfully poor script and a shameful acting uh, attached on as an afterthought. Why any studio greenlit this project is completely beyond me. We'll continue in just a second. Say so thanks to Hopeless Case 30, who was just tweet to say yes that video is still available and has sent it the one of us running around the around the quadrant with me in the flip-flops and you in the t-shirt and i don't cheat do i yeah you do you cut the corner off on the inside very very clearly i mean it's it's on film everybody can see you're cheating ride along two is at number eight I thought it was less annoying than Ride Along 1. Um, I, I, I didn't like it very much. I didn't laugh very much. But Ride Along 1, I found positively tooth-grating. And Ride Along 2, I found less troublesome. 
Uh, the Big Short is at number seven. Susie Colbeck on this. This has uh, really divided email. people, hasn't it? I recently went to see The Big Short with some trepidation after reports of it being misogynistic, and we yeah. were talking about that yeah. uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago. As a committed feminist, I would say it absolutely is not. Okay, good. The representation of Margot Robbie and Selena Gomez versus that of Anthony Bourdain did nothing but reflect the prevailing culture, even more so at the time it was set, where pretty women and successful men sell to us. They were all, however, strong and smart portrayals. The other female characters were strong and pivotal. The film itself, I thought, was whip-smart and appealed to the part of me that loved the newsroom and felt like I was a cleverer person at the end of it. Would that there were more films that were so smart, so brave and so truthful. The performances were uniformly excellent and the soundtrack was amazing. More of the same, please. The only thing I'd add to that is that you've read the book, right? You've, you've, you've I've read been... some of the book and interviewed the guy who wrote it. And apparently in the source book, there is a key woman trader. Who's disappeared. Who's right? disappeared in the film, which it is true. That once you know that, it makes you feel slightly more suspicious about it. Because I, I like the film when I saw it. And I've, I, you know, and I, I, I agreed with, with a lot of what's said in that email, but... I am slight. I'm slightly confused by why that would happen. I mean, you, you, it it does seem like an odd omission. Uh, so there's a big short number seven. Star Wars is at number six, which I think we've uh, probably dealt with, but it is still there. I ask a Star Wars question, which is: At what point does the Star Wars plot spoiler embargo end? In a few years. Okay, fine. So we still we still tread as carefully as we ever did. I only I only ask because obviously everybody who's a hardcore fan will have now seen it. Yeah, yes. So he said, does there come a point after which the the unlike I'll give you an example. I write for a newspaper that comes out on, that comes out on a Sunday, yeah. and I'm I, I remember thinking, well, if it comes out on a Sunday, everyone who's a fan of this will have seen it already, so I don't need to worry quite so much about it. But we were reviewing the film on a Friday, and I was thinking at the time that we were reviewing it, we have to we have to be very very careful because there are still people who can't. I just you know, I wonder whether the whether with a, with a film like that. Once you pass the opening weekend, everyone who was desperate to see it has done already. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You would think that everyone who really feels very strongly has gone to see it already. Uh, the Cohen brothers, I can tell you, haven't seen it. Okay, fine. Because uh, I've done an interview with them, which, yeah. is, uh, which is going out in a couple of weeks' time. Two weeks this is for Hail Caesar, which has got a fantastic yeah. trailer. I haven't seen the film yet, but no, I, love, I love both trailers, in fact. You would think, though, as they basically... We were talking about this in, in the interview, so I'm just trailing ahead here. A bit of a spoiler for the interview. Would the, you would think, as they kind of invented Oscar Isaac, you know, it was the first time I ever saw him yeah. in, inside Lewin Davies, that they might have just <laughs> gone to see him in Star Wars. But no, they, they're looking forward to getting round to it. Oh, very good. I mean? Okay. Uh, Anyway, that's in a couple of weeks' time. Now, quite a bit of correspondence on Spotlight, which, okay. is, which is at number five. Sarah. I like very much. It says, uh, this is Sarah Buddery. Spotlight is the perfect film. Deeply affecting, wow. incredibly well acted, tinged with subtle tension and excitement, uncomfortable, shocking and truly wonderful. It's another one of those films like Room that feels slightly difficult to say you enjoyed. The subject matter is horrifying, so difficult to enjoy in that sense, but certainly very easy to appreciate the way it's made and how the story is told. It's solidly made, flawlessly acted, telling an important story in an easy-to-digest manner that keeps the victims at the forefront and plays rather plays down the work of the Spotlight team. Its closing moments are perhaps the most telling. There's no backslapping, no fists in the air, no hooray-we-got-them-guys moment. The team come back into the office, carry on with their work, and the film is over. I don't think that's a spoiler. This really grounds the film and allows the dramatic nature of the stories themselves to create the tension and emotion rather than forcing a reaction that simply didn't need to be there. 
Jonathan Reek, what a film this is. Who would have thought watching four guys frantically write stuff on notepads and post-it notes for two hours would be so enthralling? I couldn't take my eyes off it, and for someone that starts to fidget after two hours in a cinema, I would have gladly stopped another hour, and that was good. The actors were so believable in their passionate attempts to get to the uh, bottom, uh, or top of it in this case, of the abuse. Mark Ruffalo's performance was fabulous, his character's appetite for the truth superb, and his hand clenching to his knee fidgeting was so believable. He is a fidget in the movie. He absolutely yes, is a yeah. fidget. You're a fidget, actually. I'm am a I? fidget, yeah. Okay. So, knee wagglers in cinemas are a pain. And I yeah, but I don't do it in cinema. I do. Okay. The whole row starts to shake. Yeah. Uh, John uh, Carberry, just went to see Spotlight, my local cinema here in Galway. Uh, I witnessed this powerful film shut up a number of noisy filmgoers who talked through the first few minutes. <sighs> Everyone in the theatre seemed to be holding their breath eventually, and when the list of parishes that the Spotlight team helped expose, featured some places close to home, I heard a single Oh God, which seemed pretty fitting. I hope this film illuminates the subject it depicts for a further audience that the original articles managed, and it really seems like the filmmakers were giving this story the exposure it demands. One more, Ben says, I ventured to my local uh, cinema to see Spotlight, spurred on by Mark's glowing review, the interview with Mark Ruffalo in the podcast. It was sensational. As highlighted in the review, there is little or no action in the film, yet Tom McCarthy managed to make every plot turn ooze suspense. Never before, and I imagine never again, will I be genuinely anxious watching a character looking through an encyclopedia of priests (laughs) or searching for a photocopier. It is what I imagine being captivated by a chess match would feel like. Ruffalo was terrific, but equally matched by both Keaton and McAdams, and the film will deserve all all the awards that are hopefully coming its way. When the film ended... With that text, the entire cinema gasped and I found myself gasping along with them. And the only thing I'd like to add to that, and people have talked about Mark Ruffalo's performance, is that Liev Schreiber's performance, for me, is almost the best thing in the film because he's underplaying it. And he plays Marty Baron, the uh, editor who comes in from outside, who absolutely doesn't fit in with, you know, his uh, his religion is different, his uh, uh, knowledge of sport is non-existent, he's an out-of-towner. And the whole point about the film is it takes somebody from outside who isn't part of any clique to see this for what it is and I think his performance is exactly the sort of thing that you don't that doesn't get flagged up in awards ceremonies because it's so low key it's so underplayed and yet I think it's really really powerful so uh, we have Spotlight at number five Dirty Grandpa's at number four The Revenant is at number three have you seen... Did, when you saw The Revenant, did you see it on big screen or small screen? Well, it was one of those screening room things, so it was like medium-sized. Medium-sized. Screen. So okay. I would think that would equi- be equivalent to, like, Cinema 3, Screen yeah. 3 in okay. local. I think uh, The Revenant is one of those films in which how much you enjoy it is directly connected to the size of the screen upon which you see it. So my what I would say is, if you're going to see The Revenant, make sure you see it on the biggest, most immersive screen and, you know, sound setup possible, because... It's definitely one of those films in which it works on a visceral level when you're surrounded by it. And when you're slightly stepped back from it, because I've seen it twice, and you know, once on a small screen, once on a big screen, it's a very, very different movie. Incidentally, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to win the Oscar for... for, for, for is that right? Well, it is his turn. It is his turn. And to be honest, it's a, it is a fabulous performance. So I, don't, I think if he wins, then that's perfectly fine. But it's, an, it's an Oscar-winning performance because it's a lot of suffering and beardy. You know? And so there's, you know, I, don't think, I, I don't know that it's the best performance I've seen this year, but it is certainly his turn. Dad's Army uh, is at number two. So let me do the yeah. um, reviews because yeah. you were sort of slight, you were kind I'm of. I'm very lukewarm about very it. Very lukewarm, I, very I, disappointed. I think that, well, I think that it's a great cast and that, 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 that they aren't, that the movie isn't as good as they are. However, 
I understand that people have been enjoying it, so, perhaps more than I have, more than I did. Kathy Westgate, just been to see Dad's Army. Um, and we are both so glad that we ignored the negative reviews. Okay, cool. sure Easily passed the six laughs test, and it was a heartwarming, funny film, and all the better for being a gentle family comedy, a rarity these days. Good performances throughout, and we thought that the addition of actual roles for women was an improvement on the original, and a damn sight more empowering for women than the trashy bridesmaids. Uh, Father Jennings has been on. Dear Wilson and Mannering, very many thanks for your less-than-glowing review of Dad's Army. I had already booked to see it with my wife and two children, aged 10 and 13, and so was committed to the viewing. However, I found that my expectations had been lowered as a result of your criticisms, and I subsequently enjoyed the film immensely, as did the rest of the family. It had a great cast, passes the six-laugh test with flying colours, and had me and the missus welling up at the end. It's no Citizen Kane for sure, but as a slapstick comedy, it ticks all the boxes. Many thanks for your help. Uh, Alex and Kirsty, having grown up in a household where Dad's Army... Would have been a cross gen- would have cross generational appeal. It was curious to see how the sitcom would be adapted to the big screen. The casting's fantastic, but seemed to fall into the uncanny valley where the characters just didn't feel quite right. Combined with a script that didn't carry nearly enough laughs and a fairly predictable story, led to humdrum cinema experience. On the plus side, it wasn't awful. On the downside, it could have been better. I love that phrase, uncanny valley, which I think the first time I heard it was in reference to a, a CG character, and I think it was somebody from Pixar talking about that awkwardness when you get something which is close enough to real life to but not quite real and then you fall into uncanny valley look i'm really glad that people are enjoying it as much as they have partly i think lowered expectations is an element of it also it, i mean there are things about it that are sort of sweet i mean i think the performances are sweet i don't think it's as good a film as it could or indeed should have well, been. you and i would have gone in with very high expectations you know yeah because i because that's, that's, ab- that's absolutely right and also because of that cast Yes, because you know you look at that cast and you just go yes, 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 yes. That's the most brilliantly. It is one of the best bits of ensemble casting I've seen in in a really long time. Uh, Chris Gately in Repton. After your review, I was uncertain whether I would enjoy the film. I also remember the not very good original movie that was poor in comparison with the TV shows. However, this film was like meeting up with old friends and watching an extended TV episode on the big screen. Which I had no problem adjusting to the new actors taking the original roles. This probably for the same reason that the original cast was so good. Excellent, serious actors using their skills to make the characters seem real. Catherine Zeta-Jones equally convincing. I laughed along with the others in the audience and left with a warm feeling inside, wishing there was another episode to watch next week it's a great British film and and it's at number two so my guess is they'll be quite happy with that I would think so yes because I, I think that, you know my impression was that when it opened that the, that the general response wasn't great but actually it's found a home with audiences and, and good for it I mean good I'm glad I'm glad it's done well I'm glad people are enjoying it um, and, you know, as we've always said with critics, you know, what do they know? Box office uh, number one is Goosebumps. Which I went into with no expectations whatsoever and enjoyed much more than I thought I was going to. It's been a project that's been on the go for an awfully long time. Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski did the original version of the script and they had done not only the Problem Child thing, but also People vs. Larry Flint and Ed Wood. And um, although the script is now a couple of generations away from their original draft, it retains that central idea that you actually have the character of R.L. Stein writing the books and then the monsters come to life out of the 
books. That's how you get all these different stories to work. It's like a kind of poltergeisty, gremlinsy, uh, very, very effects heavy and slightly baggy, but I enjoyed it. Again, there may be an expectations thing in here because I went into it not thinking I was going to enjoy it that much and, and was really pleasantly surprised. Uh, Stuart in Glasgow uh, watched Goosebumps this past weekend. At, well, actually, he's from Glasgow, but he's now in the frozen northwest of Western Canada. Wow. Uh, I watched it uh, at home as it's already on pay-per-view here in Calgary. My kids, age 10 and 8, loved it. Reminded me, age 46, of Gremlins. Great fun. <laughs> yeah, there scares, we go. Yes, I agree. And a funny accent. What's not to like? <laughs> um, Jack Black's accent is very odd. Ali Wybrew says, I was so pleased to hear that Mark liked Goosebumps. Uh, as I saw it recently, felt strangely refreshed in a time where films like Dirty Grandpa, Deadpool, Bad Neighbours, and some time ago, This Is The End, seemed to be setting new low... Uh, new low bars in an apparent definition of comedy. Goosebumps was an entirely enjoyable, funny and friendly affair that this 30-year-old Goosebumps book virgin would happily see again. Uh, Patrick McManus enjoyed Goosebumps immensely. Good old school PG fun, no dark subversive edge, just good old plain silliness. Jack Black, good to uh, back to his best, like in School of Rock. Not Declan Patrick McManus. Uh, no idea. Can't help you with that. Who? Oh, I see. As in Declan McManus. No, as Declan Patrick Aloysius McManus. I don't him, yeah. think it's him. No. I just wonder whether Elvis Costello was just writing in to give us his review of Goosebumps. If, if he wants to, that'd be fine. And Anna Dobby, I really enjoyed the fun retro B-movie creeps in Goosebumps. Reminded me of films I love from my childhood. Gremlins, Jumanji, Ghostbusters. There were lots of enjoyable horror movie references. There have been a lot of people talking fondly about Jumanji recently. I must go and watch that again. I really like the opening Danny Elfman music with overhead shot of Scenery, which reminded me of Beetlejuice, plus the werewolf's nod to Freddy, Freddy's Mr. Tickle Arms from Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, that's, that's right. That does happen, yeah. Uh, Goosebumps is the UK's number one. So uh, we're going to be talking Zoolander 2 next. What else is going to be coming up in the next We're going to be reviewing Zoolander 2 in the next half hour. Last week we were talking about people who listen to the show and actually never have any intention of going to the movies. Yes, and didn't we come up with an... an not an acronym. Yeah, they're the NCGs. The, the NCGs, the, the non-cinema girls. Exactly. Thank you. Is that an acronym? That's not an acronym. Is it an acronym? I, I think I think that well, it doesn't sort of spell anything. No, that's it. So an so, acronym has to spell something like AWOL. So this is NK. <laughs> Ian McNee of Hull. Do that again. NK. Isn't he a, he's a movie director, isn't he? <laughs> he is. Well done. Well done. Having kept quiet for some time, I can now out myself as being part of the newly recognised non-cinema-going listeners. In some ways, I feel that we will be looked upon as freaks, or perhaps we are the rebellious ones that hang out at the back of the class. None of this is true. I, for one, am normal. I have a dog to walk, a young family. Notice that the dog came first. Yes. A full-time job and a commute from Hull to York and back every day. I used to love a trip to the cinema, but once, since becoming a dad, it now feels like the distant past. I can let you in on one of the secret best bits of being in the NCG club. You know when films come out in part one and part two, but it's really the same film. Instead of waiting for the inexplicable 12 months between them, we can just wait and then watch them all together, yeah, one night after the other. Uh, Lauren says, uh, I'm responding to last week's correspondence from people who listen to your show loyally, but rarely or possibly never go to the cinema. I believe I'm in an even more sparsely populated area of the congregation, someone who works in a cinema but is not able to see any of the films. I don't work as an usher or projectionist, so don't get paid to watch the films, and the nature of my job means that I tend to be working during the screenings. Also, I have a 10-month-old baby, which further compounds my attempts to catch up with a film or two. I don't know what Laurent does, but obviously Laurent can't watch the movies. Cinema manager, maybe, or... Maybe. David Carr in Leeds 
Jules is not about a shark. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is not about spying. And your programme is not about going to the cinema. If I may be so bold, I would suggest that it's about life, laughter and the love between two friends and their listeners. The films are just the cover story. Blessed are the non-cinema goers, uh, for they are the true believers. There you go. That's not bad, is it? That's very good. We'll we'll pin it to the wall. Uh, So, reviews to come after three o'clock, but are we going to be pretty much making that pouty face for the next 20 minutes? Do that again? No. I actually was. We're going to do that as a Snapchat. Mark doing the blue steel. La Tigre. We should do some Snapchat, and we should do it while we're listening and enjoying a bit of uh, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson, who you'll hear just a moment after this clip from Zoolander 2. Derek Zoolander. Yes. Valentina Valencia. Interpol. Global Fashion Division. Fashion police? We're clean, lady. Go harass somebody else. Besides, I'm out of fashion. I need to talk to you. It has to do with the death of Justin Bieber. His death is not my problem. I can use the database at Interpol to help you find your son. A clip from Zoolander 2. Owen Wilson, Ben Stiller, gentlemen, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Hi. Thanks uh, for having us. Well, it, it, it's a pleasure. And I'm just yeah. realising that I was saying it's Zoolander 2, but the poster behind you says Zoolander number 2. Is that like a poster joke or is that actually... What's the name of the that's movie? Pl- well, it's Zoolander number 2 and that's sort of a play off of the Chanel? I guess. We never really decided what we're going to call the movie. So you're not sure what the name of the well, film is? Well, we started with Zoolander 2, then we thought about 2-Lander, <laughs> then we thought 200-Lander, because the 2 in front of the zoo looked like 200-Lander. Yeah. Yeah. And then we saw this Zoolander number 2 poster. Zoo two. Yeah, and then I, we thought that that was a funny poster, so we thought, all right, let's do that poster. But in the movie, it says Zoolander 2, so I guess, I guess it doesn't matter, ultimately. It's just another Zoolander movie. Okay. I don't think I've done an interview about a movie where I'm not quite sure what the title is with, with the guys who are in right. it. Who, who aren't able to yes. clear up the confusion. Two Lander, the sequel. <laughs> and given, Ben, that you produced and wrote and directed and... Co-wrote, yeah. Co-wrote and co-starred. You, you might have come up with a title by now. but we'll... I know, I know. I keep on feeling like we're still working on the movie, but it's done. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I was working on it up until the moment we it were showing it. It feels like we're still working on it because... I guess we are kind of still working on it. We were, as we were saying, we, yeah. we were just at Abbey Road doing that. Um, that was fun. You know, in character. So you've so been at Abbey Road today. Playing. We went we were, to Abbey Road today, yeah. Did the We jammed across. with Eddie Izzard. Yeah. On the Lady Madonna piano. Yeah, which uh, Derek uh, was very excited because um, he didn't realize that Madonna had recorded there. Uh, Apparently... She did express yourself there. Yes. <laughs> did you do the whole zebra crossing thing? We did. Did you write your names on the wall outside? No, we didn't do that. Okay. No. I didn't see where that was. That if Derek and Hansel could write, they probably yeah. would. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the genesis of this movie is, is an interesting one. Just when you, when you announced it, the first, I think the first time that we heard that there was going to be one, was, was it the Paris fashion show when you guys just... I think that was the first time that we were officially saying the movie was happening. Yeah, even though we didn't actually say it, but that was our way of announcing it. Can you just explain precisely what happened? Sure. Uh, there was a, a Valentina women's show in Paris uh, in March of last year, and Derek and Hansel show, show up in the show at the end of the show. Uh, close to the finale of the show. Unannounced? Unannounced. It was a big surprise. We kept it a secret. We planned it for a while. It took a while to get figure out 
how we were going to do it and, and who was going to do it with us. And the, uh, we had dreamed about doing it with uh, an iconic fashion brand. We, we didn't think Valentino would actually say yes, but they did. And what are you wearing? I was wearing pajamas that uh, they say you can also, you know, are suitable for the bedroom or a night out on the town. And uh, I, and I kept uh, them. I had a suit and uh, a, like a cape kind of coat. And uh, oh yeah, yeah, we had a we had these uh, overcoats that we sort of threw off, and that really sent the crowd to the next level. <laughs> I was going to say the re- so the reaction was what sort of immediately innovation, or was it like stunned amazement? Then they realized well, what they're getting. I mean, does it? It's it a discovery sounds, that kind of happened yeah. as we were going down. I mean, we didn't know. We were kind of, you know, we were a little bit. I was definitely feeling the. the, the I felt the like it was pandemonium. Yeah. I don't know if it's if that sounds. <laughs> well, it got to something to as we about, started but, to walk but, down. People were like, "What? What's going on?" And because it was really a surprise, I think, and that was one of the reasons why it was successful. I think was because nobody really had any idea it was going to happen. And then as we got down closer to the end of the runway. People were, oh, wow, oh, and then they started standing up and clapping and taking pictures and um, laughing. Yeah. And did you, were you instantly back in character after all those years? Was it, did it just, was it like putting on an old pair of jeans or a kind of a new smart pair of jeans? But obviously, was, is it dead easy? A new smart pressed pair of course, tight jeans. Um, <laughs> it was, I mean, we had been in prep for doing the movie for a while at that point we were about to start shooting the movie and we're actually we're shooting some tests and things like that that week so we'd just been like in the mode of getting back into it and but but walking out there not knowing how people would react if they would even care or remember you know really there were there was no guarantee that anybody was going to actually care would we be walking out to just a polite <laughs> smattering of applause if that uh, yeah. if that yeah. or would it be just sort of a kind of a yeah, dead eye look, but it really was like you felt kind of sort of like a wave energy. of laughter yeah. and energy, and that ovation that you got then at, at, uh, in Paris when yeah. when you when you did the runway in, in comparison with how the movie was re- the movie one was received first mm-hmm. first time, mm-hmm. which was, I mean now it's a cult movie everyone everyone is really looking forward to this movie very excited about the new movie coming out, mm-hmm. but when you launched first time it was it wasn't to gales of approval was it no it wasn't and it you know and that's what made it sort of well that's why it, we didn't do a sequel um, because there wasn't a demand because it just sort of did okay. Um, and then over the years, it seemed to build this, um, like you said, cult following. When did you realize that you'd made a you know, a big movie and a movie that everyone wanted to talk about and would quote and would shout across the street? Well, the Valentino is where I kind of, well, okay, it seems like there's a, a real anticipation based on this. But over the years in traveling, especially in Europe or even in like South America, it seemed to be of the movies that I've worked on, the one that um, people would really come up and quote lines from. And I would kind yeah. of share that with you and you'd say, yeah. Do you yeah, no, it was a experience? gradual thing. I don't think there was a moment when I realized, you know, it just felt like over the years people would ask about it or then I'd see people reference Blue Steel or here and there or somebody would like, you know, email a picture of somebody where, you know, it says, oh, they're doing Blue Steel. Um, or somebody like a sports announcer would say it, and you know, I, and and so it felt like it was the movie was having a life, and then you know, it, it just eventually the studio was saying to us, hey, you know, we really want to 
do this if you want to do it. And uh, it took a while, though, to actually figure out how to do it and, and get everybody together. And Were they coming to you sort of first, or was it... No, it was kind of... Um, I mean, it was a gradual thing because we started in 2005. We wrote a draft that was a totally different story and uh, never really went forward with it. And then in 2010, we wrote this draft, or the, the, the basis of what, what this was, this movie is. And then it didn't get off the ground back in 2010. Why would it not? Given that by 2010, it was all, it was a it was a huge movie yeah. and, and everyone was doing the doing the face. Right. And it, you know, why would it not? Go off the ground. Then. I think movies are hard to make to get off the ground, no matter what. I mean, I don't think people understand the process of, of getting a movie made for either a, a studio movie or an independent movie. People work years and years to try to, you know, to, to, to get the financing together for or this kind of cast. Also. Yeah, getting the cast, getting the uh, figuring out what how to make it, the budget, the all of it kind of coming together, and the momentum of it. But weirdly, I I felt the momentum start to grow even past 2010. That's what I started to feel, was that there was more of an awareness even in the last five years. So does that make, I mean, if, if, uh, if the reports are right, you actually had to chip in yourself to get the last movie made. Does, does the fact that all that has now happened and that Zoolander is now this big project make the, the filming of this one, Zoolander number two, was more fun? Was it more relaxed? Um, the first one was was fun at times, but it was also uh, was not the easiest uh, experience too because of, of those reasons, I don't think the studio really understood the movie. Not that we did either, but <laughs> they definitely didn't. And at uh, least you all agreed on a title. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, the second time around, the studio was much more receptive and you know got what the movie was, and that made it a much easier experience and a more fun experience on on that on that level for sure. Can you tell us um, a bit of the story that we're going to see in Zoolander number two? Uh, yeah, it's a very complicated, intentional plot, um, convoluted one might that, say. Uh, An overview, then. Okay. An well, basically, overview. fifteen years have gone by, and Derek and Hansel have uh, disappeared from the limelight. Uh, there's been a tragedy involving Derek Zoolander Center for kids who can't read good and want to learn to do other stuff good too. And uh, Derek's life has changed. Which Hansel's was a life possible has changed. Title at one point too. Well, the name of that school was the title yeah. of the movie. <laughs> at least it's got to it. Yeah. Um, so, so they are Derek's in reclusion, living up in the mountains of extreme northern New Jersey. Uh, Hansel's living with a group of people that he's in a relationship with in uh, Malibu, in an uncharted part of Malibu, and uh, they're out out of it, and they get an invitation to come back to a fashion event from Alexandria Atos, who's sort of the new fashion doyen. The uh, person who's taken the place probably of uh, Mugatu, Jacobin Mugatu, played by Will Ferrell, the first one who has gone to jail after trying to assassinate the Prime Minister of Malaysia. I could get more interesting. Oh, okay, no, 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 okay. no, that's fine. Can well, I- that actually does remind me, though, of one time I was in Malaysia. I went to go see, uh, in Kuala Lumpur, the Grand Prix, and there was some gala dinner that um, that we attended, and the Prime Minister of Malaysia was there and Live. I got a photograph. Yeah. Did that really happen, Owen, or were you just in your room tripping on peyote for the last six days and you just thought you did? Well, really? Uh, yeah, now that you mention it. Uh, it literally sounded like a there had been a some, monologue. No, but I think I sent it um, to you. You did. Picture. He sent me a picture of himself with the Prime Minister of Malaysia. 
you know, hard button issue. That whole, se- that whole sending of pictures, though, is, makes this a zeitgeist movie again, doesn't it? Because everyone is, you know, everyone is taking pictures, and when they're taking pictures, they're often doing the Zoolander look, aren't they? They're doing sure. Blue Steel. That's, now is the moment for this film. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that Derek existed before the uh, selfie existed, and it's hard to think of him not being attracted to uh, his own camera phone. So it felt like in doing the movie, we had to acknowledge that and, uh, you know, make that a part yeah. of who Derek is. Cause, um, you know. We've got a, a, a list of questions here, which I just wanted to mention before we finish uh, from our Facebook page. Sid Walker says, looking back, guys, how special was it to get David Bowie to appear in the first Zoolander? Well, um, you know, it was... When it happened, when Ben told me that David Bowie was going to be in the movie, it was exciting, and um, I think I was a little bit, how did we get him? Uh, I don't know. It seemed like such a kind of lucky thing, Uh, but the day that we worked with him, um, just a really funny, um, cool guy, and then, um, yeah, with the recent sad news... um, just feel lucky to have met him. Yeah, I think it's very, it was very special for us to be able to have him in the movie. And uh, even before his passing, it was always something that I was just couldn't believe that it had come together the way it did. And uh, and uh, yeah, so I feel fortunate too. Just a brief word on the cameos then in this mm-hmm. in this movie because there's been a lot of you know people know I think about some of the characters that are in. But what what can you tell us without giving too much away? Uh, there, you know, there's a, a, a bunch of different people who show up in the movie. Uh, I try to keep them a surprise. Uh, a bunch of different people, isn't that helpful? Uh, you know, Justin Bieber, people know he's in the film. Uh, gosh, um, I guess people are aware that... Uh, Carl Lagerfeld. No, he's not in the movie, Owen. Owen keeps saying Carl Lagerfeld is in the movie, <laughs> and he's not. He, we wanted him, in, yeah. and we, we weren't able to get well, him. Well, I met him in Paris, and... Uh, he would have been good. He has a good think, look. Yeah, he had said yes, and then you met him in Paris and something. <laughs> okay. Maybe for the next one. <laughs> yes. uh, guys, we're out of time. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Great Owen, talking Thank you, you very much. Okay. Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson is really taking a long time with he was so late. some of those vowels. And then... <laughs> Uh, what they really need is on Radio 4 Owen Wilson reads War and Peace you'd be here until Christmas just, just do your impression again well he's like you know it's long okay and the real one this is the type of radio energy I like <laughs> yeah. he, he, you know, he enjoyed it but he was as you can imagine Ben Stiller is, is sitting on a uh, on an armchair leaning forward yeah Owen Stiller is sort of and Ben Stiller all, all wiry energy and yeah yeah and you can imagine that the two are Wilson so, not. I mean, clearly they get on and they're making all these movies, but two contrasting <clears> guys. Anyway, we'll get to all your reviews and thoughts after the news. This is what Mark thinks. Well, big sigh, I'm afraid. Look, the, the I, do, you know, I do think Zoolander is very funny. And it is, as you quite rightly say in that, in that interview, it's something that's just grown in stature over the years to the point that now I think most people would now know it from DVD and they've seen it on television reruns and consequently it has become, you know, eminently quotable. And I think that the, uh, the therefore when there was news that Zoolander 2 was coming out, I was really excited about it. And actually I thought the first trailer was really funny. And I went into this wanting it to be really funny 
and then realising that I just wasn't laughing. And it suffers from exactly that problem that sequels so often suffer from. It's overly plotted because you kind of feel like in order to make, you know, to justify its existence, it has to have this, you know, convoluted, an unnecessary plot. Whereas before we had that delightfully throwaway cameo from David Bowie, which really just kind of turns up and is wonderful. Now you've got to build up to much more sort of portentous rock star cameos. And everywhere you look, there are famous faces desperate to be in on the joke in a kind of mugging way. And what it's, it, what it's lost is the sort of outsider sense that it had before. Uh, so what you get is something which, when it works, it works because it reminds you of the original. But a lot of the time, it just reminds you how much more you enjoy. I mean, I've laughed all the way through the original several times in you know various parts. It was funny because you were talking about when it first came out. I don't think we were even on air that particular week. And... Um, I th- well, it, ca- it came out just before, just before not, yes, 9/11, yes. So, so, I, so I, I think I think there wasn't a show then, and on. and so you hadn't seen it at the time, and you know, uh, it's I the disappointment for me is partly because I really wanted it to be smart and funny and uh, you know acerbic, and I like the characters and I like the idea of I like the idea of them coming back, and it was about. 10, 15 minutes in when I realised that the thing I just wasn't doing was laughing. It felt like somehow the joke had been co-opted. Somehow the joke had been turned into something that it wasn't in the first place, something which everybody wanted to, to be in on. And I do think it's to do with that difference. Between, you know, a movie which opens and isn't... I mean, Spinal Tap's another example of something which wasn't a huge hit and then over the years became sort of immensely quotable. It's just it's just a real shame. So you end up with these big set pieces, you end up with all this globe trotting, you end up with, you know, just loads and loads of stuff, narrative, narrative, narrative all over the place, when actually what you really wanted was just the simple, you know, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. That's what you wanted. And it just felt, you know, comedy... It, is best when it's you know when it's on the hoof when it's light when it's you know and this it just felt lumpen it felt like this great big movie lumbering around some comedy set pieces now that's not to say that it isn't without any pleasures at all because there are a couple of chuckles although i did ask you afterwards you said it passed the six laugh test yeah i think so yeah i think i confess it didn't for me it didn't. Well, six and, is quite a low bar. That's all. That's all. I yeah, and that's what the, this. There was there was whole oases of it when I just I, I was just thinking, uh, why isn't this funny? And believe me, I went in wanting it to be funny. I went in with an awful lot of goodwill, and I came out with a, I have to confess a rather heavy heart. With reduced expectations, I wonder a bit like yes. Dad, after Dad's Army. But, okay, well, I heard you say it was rubbish. sure, sure. No, I'm not saying it's rubbish. I'm just saying it's nothing like as good as it needs to be. It really. It's very hefty in a bad way. So your email thoughts uh, on Zoolander number two or Zoolander two coming up in the next half hour. What else are we going to be looking at, Dr. Mark? We're going to be looking at the survivor list. We're going to be looking at Deadpool and we'll probably do Alvin. And we've just tweeted a video of us doing the, <laughs> doing a bit of blue steel. I think it's really, really impressive. It's almost a cameo for the next movie. 
This is the type of radio energy I like. Thanks, Owen. We'll try and get some energy. Uh, You're going to play that over and over again now. Well, it's, it's, it's quite a nice uh, thing. We're going to talk Deadpool in this half hour, plus your reviews of Zoolander. Mayo at bbc.co.uk, 85058, live streaming via the Five Live website. Andrew Tether, my wife, uh, daughter, and I had the pleasure of seeing Zoolander number two at the beautiful Broadway cinema in Letchworth last Sunday. The three of us thought that it was a better than average sequel, made us all laugh, certainly passed your six laugh test. It would okay. appear, however, that the rest of the audience were not of the same opinion, as their laughs were few and far between. Mm -hmm. The overall impression that I got was that the audience had either not seen or could not remember the first film, and indeed certain references to it appeared to fall on deaf ears. Suffice to say, however, that the very numerous cameos had to be seen to be believed. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Dan in Cardiff, having enjoyed the first film but not embracing it in as high regard as others had, I went into a preview screening of Zoolander 2 with lowered expectations, no preconceptions from early reviews. I, more than anybody, appreciates an audience obeying the code of conduct during a film. However, everybody seemed to be craving for a moment of comic relief that would break the awkward silence that filled the screen today. Unfortunately, albeit a few light sniggers for Kirsten Wiggs over the top but highly underused ATARs, I cannot recall a single moment of crowd reaction throughout. Whilst the cameos in the first film added to its playful nature, this, on the other hand, suffers from an oversaturation of name checks, poorly edited, especially during its slack conclusion. I agree. Rob Lloyd, PhD in English literature at Cardiff University. In the space of 102 minutes, give or take 15 years, Ben Stiller has managed to bleed dry the reservoir of affection felt for his fat-headed fashionista (laughs) with a second outing that is a baffling mixture of the crass, the crude and the desperately unfunny. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly where everything goes wrong, partly because it's difficult to justify why the film exists in the first place. Had it been a blistering satirical attack on the techno-narcissism of the selfie generation, it might have been possible to overlook the lame sorry, lame quality of its outdated jokes. Uh, Zach Jacobson, our old friend. Last night I, uh, invited to, I was invited to a charity screening of Zoolander 2 here in Auckland. I really enjoyed the first film, something Mark and I actually agree on. Uh-huh. So I was slightly trepidatious, although excited to see how they approach the sequel. The film is preposterous, ridiculous, nonsensical, and as dumb as its central character, but I loved every second of it. Recent Overlong-awaited comedy sequels such as Dumb and Dumber 2 were a disappointment largely due to the lack of original material and the reliance on gags from the first outings. Thankfully, while Zoolander 2 does retread on a few story beats and setups, the amount of new material more than justifies the film's existence. Those approaching the film with a critical or cynical eye will probably hate it. Substance isn't exactly what the movie is striving for, but come to it with a joyful heart. And you'll find much to love. And that's your problem, Mark. You didn't have a joyful heart. I, but I, no, I, I, I really did. I really did have a joyful heart. I went in, you know, wanting to laugh. That was the point. David Maguire. Zoolander 2 is without doubt the slight, without the slightest doubt the stupidest film I've ever seen. The odd thing is I didn't mind that in the least. It's a film that doesn't even pretend to make sense, gleefully disregarding the laws of physics, logic, character and mm-hmm. plot in a way that made me not so much laugh as issue sudden loud bursts of incredulity. Zoolander 2 makes the Lego movie look like film noir. But from the moment I saw Justin Bieber onwards, I decided to check my brain at the door and just go with it. All in all, it was a lot of fun. What a strange, funny way to spend a couple of hours. Uh, Thomas Blake, uh, I attended a screening of Zoolander 2 in Parnell Street in Dublin. The first Zoolander is a favourite of mine. Unfortunately, Zoolander 2 failed to deliver the same level of comedy. Gags kept missing the mark. At one point when I sensed there was a joke on the way, I made a conscious effort to listen for laughter in the screening room. 
but there was silence. Things did improve towards the end. The plot had direction. It was less flat, and Will Ferrell had a couple of funny moments. Sadly, it wasn't enough to pass the six laugh test. Overall, a disappointing experience. See, I agree with that. That It does. It it picks up... Usually, it's the other way around, but in in this case, it does pick up at the end, and it's to do with... uh, the appearance of uh, you know characters who who are funnier than what we've got on screen at the time. I, I I can't overstress enough how much I went into it with a you know with a spring in my step and in particularly because you know I, I I just wanted to have a really good laugh and then that sound of silence that many people have spoken about was you know was to some extent matched in the critic screening that I saw that said I mean you know I've read other critics reviews that that, that that like it more and there were people but I was just sitting there there was like 20 minutes went by at one point with no laugh and I thought this is not on this is not I need to be laughing more than this it's the Woody Allen insufficient laughter clause a comedy needs to keep you laughing and I'm glad that it passed the six laughs test, but it sounded like it only scraped it for you. And for many other people, it didn't even get that far. And once you once you fall out of good nature with it, once you once you start to get frustrated with the action and the endless gurning cameos, I think actually that's that was the thing that wore me down was just every it was like it was oddly like a great big gurning selfie of a film which is the which is the funniest which is the funnier dad's army or zoolander 2 well oddly enough i think i laughed more in dad's army so we're we're still under six (laughs) because you said yeah 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 what about about you what do you think which is the funnier oh I think they are very difficult to compare. Oh, so you asked me, but now you're. Just, I, mean, I had to give questions. You, no, no, but I gave you. So, what do you? Which which one did you laugh in more? I think I laughed exactly the same amount in each. Okay, I can hardly hear you over the sound of your flanneling. Flanneling doesn't take. <laughs> doesn't take. Okay. I have to say, I enjoyed both. I think both are worth going to see. There are moments. Oh, okay, all right, fine. There are moments in both that you know that are enjoyable. I think Dad's Army is a more delightful film, and we'll I agree with that. And we'll probably I agree with that. Live longer with you because of some individual moments uh, that happen in the film. Yes, I agree with that. So I would. I okay, would, but we, but neither of us were wowed by either of. Wasn't wowed by either. Um, there is a stack of correspondence about um, Zoolander, which we've touched on. Also, a stack of correspondence about Deadpool, okay. which uh, appears to be. Uh, intriguing an awful lot of people loads of posters tell us what you think okay so let's do deadpool so uh basically uh, uh anti-heroic self-referential uh non-super super non-hero movie uh what? so uh, ryan reynolds uh way the central character who's uh, a guy who's got all special skills and then something terrible happens to him and he is then reborn as this mutated uh, Deadpool. But one of the things that the mutation has done to him is that it's turned his face into something that resembles uh, Freddy Krueger, and he thinks, therefore, that he will no longer be attracted to the love of his life. So when we meet him, we meet him in the middle of this kind of vengeful act, and the whole sort of setup of the thing is, you know, with great power comes great irresponsibility. He's potty-mouthed. He constantly breaks the fourth wall. Well, one of the jokes is fourth wall break with inside a fourth wall break. That's like 16 walls. And the whole film is absolutely full of uh, self referential gags about the cheapskate nature of the expanding X-Men universe and who they could afford and who they couldn't afford and this, that and the other. I'm going to play you a clip. I have to confess, it's not a great clip. It's from near the end of the movie, but it's the clip that we had that didn't have, that wasn't sweary-tastic because the rest of the film is absolutely Roger's Profanisaurus. Go get some. 
You're gonna do a superhero landing. Wait for it. Woo! Superhero landing. Yeah, you know, it's really hard on your knees. Totally impractical, they all do it. You're a lovely lady, but I'm saving myself for Francis. That's why I brought him. I prefer not to hit a woman, so please play. I mean, that's why I brought her? Oh no, finish your tweet. It's not, that's fine, just give us a second. There you go, hashtag it. Go get her, Tiger. Okay, like I said, not a great clip, but there we go. It's the one that we could play because all the way through the film is uh, is a film which which takes great relish in profanity. And I'm somebody who actually has always found... Uh, I do think swearing can be funny. It's that, you know, it's, it's not big and it's not clever, but it can be very funny. So I went into Deadpool knowing uh, not very much about it and uh, I laughed pretty much all the way through it. A fairly consistent stream of laughs, certainly in a week in which we were just talking about Dad's Army and we were just talking about Zoolander and that terrible feeling about this isn't making me laugh. I did laugh. Also, whatever reservations anyone may have about Deadpool, in terms of just sheer hit rate uh, for laughs, it worked for me. Um, it is... Uh, on the one hand, there's a, there's, a, there's a line in it about you're just so relentlessly annoying. And I can see how it is that watching the movie could be, if you started to take against it, could really, really get under your skin. I've, read, I've seen a couple of reviews in which people have really been cross about it. And people have tweeted the show here to say he's either going to love it or hate it. And I, it, it, that's not true. I liked it. I think it's. I think there are there are problems with it. The, the biggest problem being that basically it's not kick-ass. And very few things are. And I think that it's not... It's not as anarchic as it thinks it is. And uh, it, in a way, there's a sort of sense of kind of corporate smugness to the way in which it's unpicking all that stuff. But that said, whilst they're watching it right from the opening in which, you know, it said it's, you know, it stars a, stars a CG character and it's directed by an overpack. Actually, I can't even I can't even repeat the jokes from the beginning because the swearing starts at the beginning. I'm terrified. That if, if I start repeating the lines on air, I'm going to I'm I'm going to swear on air, which I don't want to do. No, that's in general. No, exactly. So basically what you get is you get viz profanosaurus uh, language and you know, profanity. You get uh, senseless comic strip. Uh, deliberately done for uh, 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 comical violence. You get something which is constantly breaking the fourth wall and constantly nodding, not even sort of nodding and winking, but literally waving both its arms at the air in the audience. And I can understand entirely how it is that somebody might not find that amusing. But I did. And certainly in terms of keeping up... Now, for me, the last act sort of starts to fall into the thing which which any sort of franchise fair will fall into, which is that we get into the big action set pieces stuff. And even though the, 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 the jokes keep coming, as the bigger and bigger the action set pieces get, the more and more it be, I, I kind of start to lose interest. But particularly at a time in which I'm complaining about comedies having not managed to keep me laughing, and even though I can see why it is that some people might take against Deadpool, I would be lying if I didn't say that from the very beginning of it, I started smirking, I started tittering in the same way that I do when I read a copy of Viz magazine, which I know is, you know, you know, there's a, there's a photograph, there's a lovely photograph that was printed just after David Bowie died, of David Bowie reading Viz on a train. Do you see this? No. He went into, he went to do an off, uh, an interview with some someone, and I think it was Mark Radcliffe. And as he was leaving, he saw a copy of his magazine and said, do you mind if I take that? 
Um, Radcliffe went, no, no, it's fine. And there's a picture of David Bowie sitting there, you know, reading Roger Melly, the man on the telly and all the rest of it with this smirk on his face. And it's an absolutely lovely sight. Um, so I don't think Deadpool is perfect. I don't think it's the I don't think it's the, the anarchic game changer that perhaps it thinks it is. But I think it's consistently funny uh, and often a sort of, you know, guilty pleasure, smutty, potty mouth laugh that you think I really shouldn't be finding this as funny as I am. And I can see all the problems with it and I can see that it is a kind of corporate version of anarchy, but I'm laughing. And actually, at the moment, the way things are with comedy, that's really going That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Tin ear. I know, yeah. Simon Williams says, if you like excessively potty-mouthed, extraordinarily, extraordinarily violent, excruciatingly funny, fourth-wall-breaking superhero silliness, I thoroughly recommend Deadpool. Can I just say, sorry, isn't that... The, the, a beautifully preceded version of what I just said. You wait for his final line. Okay, he's going to hate it. And I go. No, no, no. He's, okay, still, he's like, this is how he sums okay, it up. Okay, fine, fine, go on. Think kick ass meets up Pompeii in the Marvel universe. Yeah, and the, but, but it, it, that's the the problem for me is that I, it, it's not as. I mean, I do remember seeing kick ass for the first time and literally being jaw dropped by it. I remember really, I remember really clearly Nigel Floyd saying to me, I can't believe they made that film. And of course, actually, the way in which they made it was they made, they had, you know, they had to go this incredibly independent route whereby the film was finished before anybody got an option on it. Um, but that's a, that's a, say, what was the phrase again? So it was, think, think kick, kick ass meets, kick ass meets up Pompeii. In the Marvel in, universe. In the Marvel okay. universe. Uh, and uh, if you've never seen Up Pompeii, don't remember it. You're going to have up to uh, Pompeii, be up on YouTube. Pompeii. I never seen, I can't no, even sing. No, I can't even, I can't really even fine. sing the Frankie Howard Thank song. Thank heavens for that. <laughs> Emma Nowinski in Orlando. As a comic book fan, I'm excited to tell you that Deadpool is one of the best superhero adaptations I've seen in a while. Ryan Reynolds has done a fantastic job of not holding back any of Wade Wilson's crude and immature humour while making <laughs> it clear immature, that the, yes. the merch with the mouth has a vulnerable side. He hides behind the jokes. The movie, much like the comics, throws itself into the fourth wall and embraces its flaws while refusing to drown in typical hero story melodrama and grandstanding. You can tell how much Reynolds loves this character and how much care he put into the movie. I would like to warn the Church of Wittertainment that unlike the majority of major superhero releases, this movie is not for children. When I went to see Deadpool myself, I was asked to present my ID at the door of the theatre, despite being six years older than the stateside cut-off age, to see an R-rated movie without a guardian. For wow. those unaware of stateside ratings, this is 17, 17 years old. Yeah. Stricter ID checks is one of many efforts... Although. Although I should say that the way it works in this is 17 without a guardian. So anyone can see it with a with a guardian, which is nuts. Stricter IG, ID checks is one of many efforts theatres have employed to warn parents that unlike the PG-13 certificate X-Men movies, this movie features full frontal nudity, gory, violence and crude language that would make Captain America blush. Stay for the after credit sequence and hello to Jason. Thank you, Emma. Uh, Paul Cummins says... The sound, uh, I am charged with the urge, nay responsibility, to comment on this week's big release, which is Deadpool. I was privileged to be invited to a preview of the movie at one of the finest cinemas in the world in Holland. The sound was amazing, the picture quality superb. However, Francis, the evil British guy, is clearly deranged, crazy, mad even. A lunatic of the most advanced order, and yet within minutes of the smug and humorless smug smugness, I was really rooting for Francis in every scene. I hated Deadpool. He's not an anti-hero, he's an adolescent with attitude. Attitude. Hit him, Francis, I shouted internally, whilst alternating between eating a soft white roll and gritting my teeth with code well, tolerance. Can I just say that that's exactly the point. I, I can see that some people 
when people take against it, they really do take mm-hmm. against it. There's a there's a writer who I very much admire, a critic I very much admire, um, who who wrote an excoriating review of it. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, yeah, oh, I can see your point, but I just didn't. It, that's not how I experienced it at all. I was sitting next to James King, who particularly incidentally enjoyed the bit at the very very end. If anyone knows knows James King, they'll understand why. Um, and uh, I, we were both laughing all the way through it. We both had the same reservation, which is it's not kick-ass, but then, you know, what is? It's like, you know, it's a very high watermark. Uh, Paul Neenan, just come out of a showing of Deadpool at the local uh, World of Cine, attended with some fine friends, and I am grinning from ear to ear. This is the best Marvel Universe since Guardians and Ant-Man and the best X-Men since First Class. But this is not a superhero movie. This is an action comedy and is strictly adult entertainment. <laughs> it pushes the 15 certificate envelope, but is also not devoid of totes emotion, though isn't soppy. Laughed in the face of the six laugh test, better action than the last Avengers movie and a terrific soundtrack. The excellent, in my opinion, use of breaking of the fourth wall is pretty cool. It draws you into the film. I was expecting this to annoy me, but it didn't. Not so great. The bloke from the awful Transporter reboot is convincing <laughs> as a villain, but the Stath would have been better cast and more believable. As but it- the thing is, can you think of a single movie, here's a challenge, can you think of a single movie that wouldn't be improved by Jason Statham? Sound of Music. No, I think Stath could be, you know, yeah. could be in the sound. He could be the, you know, the the the, the manager who finally comes around the rock. No, no? don't think so. He could, he could be. He Stath could sing "Climb Every Mountain." Uh, how Climb every mountain, ford every stream. I am not the nun. How about the Last Temptation of Christ? Okay, you got me there. Could he be one of the disciples? that work? <laughs> no, okay, fine. Okay, so That will draw that, that thread to a close very quickly, okay. won't it? John Short. And, and, but who plays Pontius Pilate in The Last Temptation of Christ? Oh, uh, go on. David Bowie. Is it David Bowie? Yeah, no, did you actually not remember that? Were I, you, were you I did know it and I could. Yeah. And he's very good at it's it. It's very rare that I get to see a film before it's been reviewed and has had all the correspondence on your show, but I have just seen Deadpool on the day of release. It's a glorious funny Passes the six love test in the opening credits. Yeah, irreverent. I, I agree. It absolutely. But but by the end of the opening credits, I thought, okay, that's it. I have done six chortles. Irreverent and happily adult comic book movie. Ryan Reynolds obviously has had a lot invested in the character and is excellent in the role. Ably backed up by Morena Baccarin as the left field love interest. Won't be to everyone's taste, but rips along at a fantastic pace. Doesn't take itself too seriously. Has a funny script and just the right amount of violence to make it a proper superhero movie for grown ups. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, Tom Edwards, the film didn't quite live up to the expectations for me. The jokes are definitely more missed than hit and the outrageous crude humour was perhaps used a bit too much. The opening few minutes made me worry that this was going to be a kind of scary movie, Meet the Spartans. Um, oh, oh. Though this was certainly not the case. Plus, the opening credit joke definitely fell flat. Uh, Chris Wilkins, Solihull Junior Tennis Champion. Uh, I am moved to contact you following one of the most surprising and entertaining cinema experiences I have ever had. I ventured on a habitual daytime cinema outing such as my life of shift work as one of Her Majesty's Rosas to see Deadpool. <laughs> just sorry. Just roll that back. Okay. I, vent- I wonder if this is how he writes statements. Go on. I ventured on a habitual daytime cinema outing, such as my life of shift work as one of Her Majesty's Rosas. <laughs> is he actually said that's fantastic. This is my new favourite piece of correspondence. Where is Rosas? What was it? I don't know. I mean, Peelers comes from from, from, from being uh, invented yeah. by Robert Peel. Robert Peel. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure someone will. Rosas. Okay, fine. 
Uh, unaware of its origins, characters or plot. What followed was tongue-in-cheek superhero hilarity. With the six laugh test passed after ten minutes, I lost count but would estimate a total of 60 laughs in a bawdy but brilliant script that even continued into the end credits. Stunning FX and visuals complemented a gripping story with innovative narrative and fourth wall sequences, etc. Et Rosas from Robert. So Peeler's. Oh, OK. So, so Rosa Peeler. Robert Peel becomes Rosa Peeler. I'm a Rosa Peeler. I'm a Rosa Peeler. And Stephen Essex just got home from a noon showing of Deadpool. I had been really looking forward to a different superhero movie. I got more than I'd been hoping to experience. Actually a decent storyline and well done action. The comedy was spot on. Six laughs well exceeded. So good. By the way, please advise everyone to stay until after the credits. So clearly (laughs) the essence of this is, yes, it's funny. It's definitely 15 and over. Oh, yes, yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more of this. Is there something you can can squeeze in? No, can I just add a very very, very quick point on the uh, the Rosas thing? I know, you know, uh, a lot of people I know are very interested in old stuff, you know, 40s, 50s, all that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, I know somebody who once reported to me that he had a friend who was so uh, embellished in the in 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 the, the in the arcane, you know, the, in the old world. That when at one point he was uh, he felt the long the long was it the long arm of the law attempted to uh, feel his collar, as I think the phrase is. As he ran away from the rosa in question, he turned around and said, "You'll never catch me, Flatfoot." Really, <laughs> that's a phrase that you really don't hear very often anymore. Uh, I just want to mention this, and then maybe we'll do. Uh, what What are the next reviews? Uh, we're going to do uh, the Survivor List, yes, and we're going to do Concussion, the Will Smith film, and a bit of Chipmunks, a bit of Chipmunks, a bit of half term action, yeah, and a bit of a bigger splash. Just do this then before the news from Justin Dolby, which is a great name, really. Simon and Mark, I have listened with interest to the recent discussion of knitting in relation to the idea of a wittertainment knitwear catalogue. This has come up a couple of times, and a few people have been quite free and inventive. Knittertainment is that yes, what they're calling As a man who enjoys knitting, I find myself occupying similar demographic territory to the women who smoke pipes who you were searching for some time ago. I wonder whether there are other male members of the church who love whipping up a new pair of socks whilst listening to your (laughs) fine programme. Do you think there are? And and okay, I'll finish this. If the catalogue idea takes off, I'd be happy to submit a knitting pattern, perhaps a festive jumper with Linda Blair's face on it, or hello to Jason Isaac's scarf. Anyway, I think this definitely has to happen. That's the first thing. I'm sure we would both pose quite happily in a selection of assorted knitwear. So, But here's the question, then. Maybe we can do this for the final half hour. Do you think there are more men who knit than women who smoke pipes? Yes. Yes, I'm almost certain that that's the case. We did find, uh, by the way, that the Reverend uh, Clutterbuck is an occasional pipe smoker. Yes, she is. So she's in. She's like super cool. Yeah, and apparently they did the the Hucklebuck on uh, Top of the Pops two a couple of weeks ago. So men who knit, uh, if you can get in touch, we'll just pass you because Justin Dolby uh, wants to be a part of this new corner uh, in the church. TV movie of the week. This bit you'll understand. Um, So what are we going to choose? Andrew Smith says, "I think the boy in the striped pajamas." It's rare that a book transfers so well to film and manages to convey the harrowing subject matter from such a unique angle. Gareth Hill, blimey, I'll choose anything from District 9, Born, Despicable Me or Evil Dead if it wasn't for The Princess Bride, which inconceivably trumps the lot. Adam Brown, Electric Boogaloo, just so that you can see clips (laughs) from Superman 4 without having to watch Superman 4. John Cox says, I hope it's The Princess Bride, just so that Mark can do his impressive clergyman impression. Daniel Herbert, it'll be the fog for me, an unpretentious spooky little chiller that could teach the current woeful crop of horror movies a thing or two about serious scares. 
And uh, Martin Waite has to be con air for its total absence of reality, but worth watching for sheer absurdity. But Mark will pick American Psycho. Well, Mark, what are you going to pick for TV movie of the week? I'm going for The Mist, which is on the uh, Horror Channel on uh, the 14th of February at nine o'clock. And this is a Frank Darabont movie with uh, Toby Jones is in it. Um, he's not he's what one of an ensemble cast, and it is really interesting because it didn't find an audience uh, when it first came out. It's based on a Stephen King source, and it's notable for having one of the most bravely grim endings I can remember. Yeah, and uh, I remember going to see it when it was when they were first first showed it. I remember coming str- coming out, and immediately I had a conversation with somebody. I said, "Well, it's, you know, it's astonishing because I can't imagine that they'll let them finish it like that." But they do. I mean, it's it's an inter- if you know the Stephen King source, it's an interesting sort of uh, take on on the King source. But I think it's a it's a it's a film which has again grown in stature over the years, and I think it's a, a really overlooked gem. Frank Darabont's The Mist, which is on uh, the Horror Channel on Sunday the fourteenth at nine trouble. pm. First of all, I would say. Don't be confused or misled by the fact that it's Frank Darabont and Stephen King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe you've seen like, this, right? Maybe it's like Shawshank, and maybe it'll make us feel all warm and lovely. Yeah, no, no. absolutely not. You know, um, you know the Shawshank Redemption. This is the Shawshank. So just think. Also, the mist. Maybe it's like a lightweight fog. <laughs> you know? Maybe, it, maybe it's that. But uh, except it so isn't. I think. It's Valentine's Day. But you, did you, you want? Did you, you see it with if, me? No, I no, I didn't. Know. But did you see it? If, yes, if you. Yeah. But how did how did you see it? I just think it's just a. Don't I would say. Oh, you didn't don't. like it. Well, it's it's very it's very well done, but it's so grim. I know it really is, isn't it? It's really you, properly. You'll come out of it and watch the road to cheer you up. <laughs> That's right. That's for its That's jolly right. upbeat ending. So I would choose any any movie <laughs> other than, yeah. apart from The Mist. Yeah, so my choice is The Mist and your choice is anything else. Correct. What else is out? Uh, oh, fine. So uh, let's do two other releases. Let's quickly do uh, Concussion, which is a new film starring uh, Will Smith, based on the true story of uh, Dr. Bennett Marlow, who was a real, he was the real life forensic. Uh, pathologist who identified the damaging effects of head trauma uh, upon uh, American football players and ended up uh, in- incurring the wrath of-, of the NFL. The reason the film is interesting is it's a, you know, it's a true life story that I didn't know. Um, and it's told, I have to say, in a rather melodramatic way with a never knowingly understated score. But it's worth it because of the central performance by Will Smith. Um because Will Smith's performance is oddly understated. If you look back, I mean, it's funny. Will Smith has sort of fallen into this routine of, you know, ticks and winks and things that Will Smith does. And actually watching this, it's 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 like he's decided to go completely the other way. The film itself is, is rather flawed. It, it's kind of uh, rather televisual. It has, uh, you know, a very sort of soft, soapy feel to it. However... I was in, interested enough in Will Smith's performance uh, to think, OK, fine, I'm interested in this story. Gugun Bataraura makes the most of a supporting role, which is, I have to say, sort of rather underwritten. But, you know, but but it's actually she makes the most of it. But this is definitely a film which hangs on its central performance and plaudits to Will Smith, I think, for giving us a performance which is so un-Will Smith-like. And it just reminds you, oh, fine, yeah, there we go. There's somebody trying to do something different, trying to do something And I think he does it rather well. The film itself is flawed, but his performance I rather liked. Um, I'd also like to flag up uh, this film, which you're going to have to sort of search out because it's. I think it's opening simultaneously uh, in cinemas and you can also get it on uh, streaming and download, which is called um, 
The Survivalist. This is the debut feature by Stephen Fingleton. And it sort of comes out of a short movie he made a couple of years ago called Magpie. It's set in a non-specific future in which we open with two lines, a red line and a blue line, showing human population and oil production. And with beautiful concision, the opening sets up the rise and catastrophic fall of humanity. We are then introduced to a world in which you know, human civilization has fallen apart, but nature has flourished. So I mean, this is very sort of, you know, unlike the arid post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic uh, worldscapes that you normally get. This is closer to example to something like Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line, in which you get that strange dichotomy between, you know, mankind involved in war, but nature in the meantime getting on with the business of replenishing itself. We have a central character, played by Martin McCann, who is living this lonely existence, sort of feral existence, in which we know that in order for anybody to survive in this world, they must be tough and they must have been killers. Out of the woods come these two women, a mother and daughter, initially asking for food and then for seeds. And then they make a sort of uncomfortable bargain in terms of physical services. And this trio start living together, but all completely suspicious of each other, all constantly looking to the outside world which is full of marauders who may at any time descend. But crucially, this central trio distrusting but living with and forming these strange allegiances with each other now what i like about the film is well numerous things firstly i love the fact that it's it's a film which relies on silence not on uh, orchestrated music but on the sound of nature on kind of what sometimes get called music concrete to tell its story it's a film in which it's a really stripped down vision um, here is a filmmaker who is using everything that they have at their disposal to crank up the tension and the atmosphere. It's a film in which, although there is some exposition, it's fairly sparse. And most of the time, it's the characters and their physicality which tells you how they got here. It is action in the present which tells you about what happened in the past. So rather than having reams of explanatory stuff, it's a film in which what's happening right now tells you how we have got to this point. Three very, very uh, fine performances of Martin McCann, Mia Goth and Owen Fuer, and uh, shot with this kind of almost clinical precision in which you can feel the atmosphere of this uh, of this collapsed world. And all the time, you are very aware of the fact that it's not the world that has fallen away. It's mankind and civilization which has fallen away. Now, I need to make clear, this is, it's a tough film. It's an unforgiving film. It's very sort of brutal in its uh, attitude to survival. And as I said, you know that in order to have survived, all of these people are people who are living absolutely, you know, a survivalist uh, instinct. But I thought it was really gripping, really smart, really well made. It's been nominated for a BAFTA and rightly so. I think Stephen Fingleton on the example of this film is a major talent in the making. And although it's it, it may well prove too tough for some viewers, I think if what you're looking for is something which really sort of challenges you and wants you to become engaged in how it is that cinema can you know, twist and turn without exposition, but to do with motion, to do with physicality, to do with the expression of an idea through visuals. I think it's a really, really interesting piece of work. And if you get a chance to see it on a big screen, do, because it's a film that deserves to be seen projected. It's called uh, The Survivalist and it is well worth your attention. 18 certificate? Uh, yes, it is.
And would it be quite difficult to find on a big screen? Do you think it's, uh, it might turn up on a small screen? It, it's possible, but I know it's also available to you know, their streaming services. But it is worth seeking out. I'll see if we can find a list of places that it's showing. But it's, it's called The Survivalist. If you can get to see it, please do. On last week's programme, the subject of wheelchair access into cinemas yes. uh, came up. And I'm not sure how much time we're going to have for this, but Andrew Bogle and Sarah Lynch, thank you for your emails. Let me just read this from Douglas Hurd, but not that Douglas Hurd. OK, fine. Um, who's in Canberra. Simon and Mark, I was interested to hear your conversation about wheelchair access to cinemas. Mark is right, I think. Access is improving, but we're not quite there yet. I've been a film fan for as long as I can remember. First film, Bambi, about 55 years ago. Wow. I've been in a wheelchair for just over 30 years after I didn't look before I leapt into the North Sea off the beach at Portobello near Edinburgh in the summer of 84, permanently paralysed in all four limbs ever since. Ho and hum, says Douglas. Uh, that's him saying it, not me. No, no, I understand. After my accident, I spent 10 months in rehab in a spinal injuries unit. When my condition was stable enough, I started getting out and about with friends, although I was still an impatient. A trip to the movies was an excellent choice. My first night out, I recall, was to see The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn with a magnificent Dame Maggie Smith and the much-missed Bob Hoskins. We chose to visit the marvellous Art, uh, Art Deco Dominion Cinema in Edinburgh, then a family-run business with four screens, thick carpets, flock wallpaper, plush seats, heavy red curtains. The manager, part of the owning family, I think, always wore a sharp suit, crisp white shirt and a bow tie. Arriving at the cinema, five or so steps up to the doors, the manager and his team, his sons, I think, were happy to lift me up to the front doors. In the foyer, I was asked what movie we'd come to see. There was a definite pause after I answered Judith Hearn. Hmm, this will be our art house screen, says the guy. Turns out that that meant the smallest cinema on the top floor of four flights of stairs in a building with no lift. But... That was then, and the customer is never wrong. So the manager, in his suit and bow tie, two other staff, who may have been his sons, and a friend of mine, carried me and my wheelchair backwards up those four flights so I could see what I believe is still one of Dame Maggie's finest films. I now live in Australia, go to the movies maybe once a week. Access is much improved, but the design of multiplexes means you usually enter near the front of the cinema with most rows of the seats behind you. Oh, yeah. The yes, wheelchair spaces, now almost universal, are about five or six rows from the front. Less frequently, you enter from the rear of the auditorium and the designated spaces are at the back of the cinema, my favourite location. I always have preferred being in the row furthest from the screen, no idea why. So I would say access is improved, designated seating areas are usually provided, and it's been a long time since anyone has carried me up the stairs into a cinema. Some still do have access problems, of course, and even if I'm the first to buy a ticket for a show, I don't have the same choices as other customers who aren't in wheelchairs. Nevertheless, I'd encourage any movie lover in a wheelchair to use their local cinema, build up a relationship with the folk who run it, and enjoy the unequalled experience of seeing films on the big screen. Uh, by the way, I assume, says Douglas, when I'm picked up for the cruise... All the facilities on board will have wheelchair access. Well, we'll yes, we'll have a word. Absolutely. That what a, a wonderful email that is. I mean, uh, certainly the my one of my favourite cinemas in Cornwall. The 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 wheelchair space is at the back, and I understand absolutely what you mean. And in fact, as you were saying it now, I was I was just thinking, yes, you're quite right. In most most multiplexes, particularly you know, very rate multiplexes, the access is at the bottom, so that would end up therefore putting you perhaps uncomfortably near to the screen which is not so great i mean i'm somebody i mean i'm long-sighted anyway and uh, so i mean i'd much rather be sort of be, be, be further away but it's i mean it's 
I'm really glad that people are sort of you know uh, writing in with those experiences because it's absolutely something which is really important for any cinema is accessibility and uh, you know people being able to get to experience what what's the last sentence Steve? just read me that last sentence again about the he said I'd encourage uh, any movie lover in a wheelchair to use the local cinema build up a relationship with the folk who run it and enjoy the unequaled experience of seeing films on a big screen yeah there we go absolutely yeah. eight minutes to four o'clock what else is new okay so let's do Bigger Splash sort of loose remake of 1969 uh, La Piscine uh, with Tilda Swinton who is a in typically impressive form uh, she's a sort of former rock diva now rendered silent by uh, some throat problems throat surgery she is uh, getting away from it all on uh, uh, an Italian island planted area, and uh, she's there with Paul Matthias Gonatz, who is her boyfriend. Uh, they are enjoying a sort of paradisal retreat until, out of nowhere, up props, uh, Rafe finds his Harry, an old flame, and an insufferable motormouth who turns up with a young woman who may or may not be his recently discovered daughter, and it immediately becomes apparent that he is there not only to disrupt the tranquility of the proceedings, but also to win Marianne back. Here's a clip. I was angry with you. Yeah, I know I was slutting around, but you took everything so hard. And now look what I've done. I've <laughs> thrown you this square... Yeah, he's square, Marianne. He's a square bear. He's all cuddly and built for hibernating with. And he's stuck. I will always be grateful to you for Paul. How are you dealing with this? What if it doesn't come back? It might not come back. Have you thought about that? No doubt you're just reinventing yourself again, aren't you? Is wearing your mother's clothes that reinvention? I don't think so. Anyway, I suppose you'll have your mummy phase and I'll have my daddy phase. But one way or another, we're just going to grow old together, aren't we? I'm happy, Harry. Can you stand that? As I said, Tilda Swinton whispering there because her, unable to use her voice. Apparently that was a decision that was made by Tilda Swinton herself when she was talking to the director, who's the director of I Am Love. She said, uh, firstly, I think the character was originally an actress and she said it's more interesting if she's a musician. And secondly, isn't it more interesting if she can't talk? Whereas Harry is this kind of motor mouth, never stops talking, constantly on, constantly aggravating. She can't. And I think that does work well. On the plus side, what we get is uh, four very good performers um, put together in this kind of... Uh, you know, Sartrean environment in which they are all hell for each other. And it, although they're in this sort of, you know, great big sort of spacious, scenic environment, they're essentially in a villa tearing each other apart. And this is done with a sense of cruel fun. And there is, uh, th- there are, you know, pleasures to be had in watching these, I have to say, fairly insufferable and fairly annoying people being fairly suff- insufferable and fairly annoying. There is also, and this is most people who are interested in the film will know about this already, there is also a lengthy sequence in which which Rafe finds uh, dances and sings along to uh, to the Rolling Stones in a manner which can only be described as unusual when one bears in mind his... You'll never look at uh, he who must not be named ever again, having seen him, you know, Voldemort. Yes, I know who Voldemort yeah, yeah. is and I know who you are. So Rafe does, he does his whole Mick Jagger around the swimming pool okay. and the thing, and it goes on for quite a long time. I mean, funnily enough, it goes on for longer perhaps than, than it entirely should do. 
uh, the film it is less certain when it looks beyond the navels of the central four characters. And I think you have to have a certain amount of patience for them. Uh, I did find that it raised that issue that I often have, which is if you have a movie in which you don't actually like anybody in it, how much can you engage? And what you do is that you engage in it in a way which is kind of slightly arch. And uh, I thought the performances were really, really great. I thought the film itself was fine. I thought it required a degree of a leap of faith in being centrally uh, involved in and caring about these characters that perhaps I didn't mean. My problem was a lot of the time it was just like, they're very annoying people and they're very annoying. Um, that said, they are played very, very well. And the film is made with, you know, with, you know, with Brio and clearly with the performance who incidentally have all been asked to go back because the director is now going to make, doing a remake of Argento's Suspiria. And apparently he's asked the central four members of the cast to all come back for Suspiria because he enjoyed working with them so much. So fine and worth it for Tilda Swinton and Rafe Fiennes doing the Rolling Stones. Okay, uh, so we've got four minutes left. How many movies? Let's, well, let's should we do Alvin? I think Alvin and the Chipmunks is needed. Okay, because basically it is half term. So, Alvin and the Chipmunks, uh, the road chip. So the story is at the beginning, uh, the Jason Lee character he wants to leave the Chipmunks behind to look after themselves because he's now seeing somebody and uh, he's trying to have his own life. So he's going off and he leaves the person who he's seeing son to take care of the Chipmunks. The person who's seeing son it turns out to be a bit of a bully and they don't want to stay with him and they don't. So certainly don't want uh, Jason Lee's character to get married because they realise that that they will therefore be related to this kid they don't like very much. So for complicated reasons, they end up going on the road. They're en route to Miami. They get to New Orleans where this happens. What? You heard me, Alvin. Simon Excuse me, could you turn that up, please? Yeah, noise sure. in the Big Easy. When I say party, you say Alvin, party. Oh, no. Alvin, party. Alvin, party. Alvin, party. So here's the thing: your your face was a oh my goodness was a picture. But I mean, I've seen all. You the... listen to Pinky and Perky when you were growing up. That's that's this is a whole movie of Pinky and yeah. Perky. Thank you. I've seen. All, so I've seen Alvin and the Chipmunks, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chipwrecked, and now Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Road Chip. Weird thing about this film is, is that on the one hand, it's it's obviously playing to you know a, a young audience, but you know how sometimes when you have this kind of thing, what they do is they'll nod and wink at the parents in the audience to kind of give them something to you know to to. to... There's a cameo appearance in this film by John Waters, and one of the Chipmunks says, "Don't judge me. I saw pink flamingos." There's also a joke about a doll in which it says, look, this head, it's exactly like Linda Blair. It goes all the way round. There's a joke about The Shining. There's a joke about Taken. There's a joke about The Terminator. It's not so much that they're nodding and winking at the parents. It's like they're going, oi, parents, Texas Chainsaw joke. <laughs> it was yeah, it's just all the Alvin and the singing that you've got to sit there's through. Actually, there's not much of the Alvin and the singing. I mean, oh, I, right. I believe me, I have seen far worse things. I've seen far better things. But it, it's you're sitting there going, well, the funny thing about it is that the people who've made this have done 
you know, that classic thing of sat down and go, okay, well, this is aimed at that audience, but that audience is coming with a childminder. Brian, so let's do John Waters jokes for the childminder. Brian Cunningham says, Dear Alvin and Simon, oh, I went to a preview screening with my son who's eight, younger daughter, five, and her friend also five. Despite my misgivings, it wasn't cringe-worthingly cringe awful. Isn't I that man- the setting of Dad's Army? I managed a few belly laughs at the nuts jokes and a few other cheeky double entendres. Anyway, thank you very much indeed, Brian. So movie of the week. The Survivalist. If you can find it. If you can find it. If you can't? Well, find it. Find make, it. Make the effort. Okay. So this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. I like it when you're stern like that. Thank just, you. Just passing out the instructions. Okay. Next week we're off because uh, we can't time. really be bothered. <laughs> so David Morrissey and Robbie Collin are going to be here. Special guest is Chiwetel Ejiofor. The podcast is ready to download. Thanks for listening. Drive comes next. This is the type of radio energy I like. I think that's good. You, are, are, Thanks, you, is that just going to go again and again and again? This is the type of radio interview I like. See, the thing is, if, if the interview had just been with Owen Wilson, it would have been quite an interesting experience because I could have asked one question and then that would might have been it. This is the kind of radio interview I like. Is that the Staith? Why haven't we had the Staith on the programme? My understanding is he has been on the programme, but always when we're not here. What does that tell you? Is that right? Yeah. I think James King did him. Really? I put in all those hours and then James King gets to do it. Maybe his movies only come out. During the holiday period. Well, that's not true. I've re- reviewed loads of the Stath films. Well, maybe it's got to be personal. Mr. The Stath. Only- well, you think he doesn't like me? I think so. I think you're just not, you don't like him enough. Okay. Ruben Muir says, I recently suffered a dilemma with two M's over your podcasts, and I felt I should tell you about, about this. I was introduced to your show last March by my dad on a car journey, and I've been a devoted listener ever since. Upon discovering your backlog of podcasts, I decided to succumb to five years of your show in order to learn all the in-jokes and just enjoy your company. <laughs> you have accompanied me That's everywhere. That's like a project. Yeah. Sit down and learn the in-jokes. You've accompanied me everywhere I, I, I've walked, and even when I'm cleaning or just plain bored. However, the other day, the inevitable tragedy occurred, and I finally caught up to that day in March and I was left feeling a little empty because I'd listened to everything. I was looking into the abyss and it was looking back at me. Then the solution dawned on me. I'll just listen to all of them again. <laughs> By now, I've more or less forgotten the first of your 2010 podcasts. So like Guy Pierce in Memento, I might be stuck in this cycle for the rest of my life. But isn't there a thing now? Because those two black holes collided. Right. This was in the news, yes, right? Yeah. These two black holes collided. Yep. And it created a gravitational ripple, which demonstrates that time is flexible. Yes, that's right. Gravitational ripples, which were audible, which was the extraordinary thing. Okay, fine. But that also means if gravity, if gravity is is this is where does this come? You know, if gravity is is flexible, then so is time, because gravity and time are the you, know, you saw Interstellar, right? So that means that technically he should now be able. He's passed us. He's got to the point where he should now be able to go into the future and listen to programs that we haven't done yet, which would be very useful because he could then report back to us about whether you know whether they're any good anyway and he says a what's up to his dad andrew who introduced us introduced him to the show and Um, as they say in austin powers i wouldn't worry about that and i suggest you don't worry about it either dvd of the week will be upcoming we shall also conclude with some um fine patter from flanders and swan oh yes fine from us do you want to squeeze in a p and p and z okay so we'll very quickly do pride and prejudice and zombies um when Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter came out a few years ago, it kind of looked like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is based on the uh, Seth uh, Graham Smith uh, book, you know, Seth Graham Smith and Jane Austen. Um, 
And now it finally comes to the screen, but directed by Burr Steers, who also wrote the screenplay, and he did Igby Goes Down. I think that's probably the thing he's most famous for doing. And so the idea is, you know, 19th century England, it's, it's uh, 19th century Britain has turned into a kind of uh, a walking graveyard, and you get the Austin, but you also get zombies along with it. So now we have militarised Bennett sisters, all of whom are trained in combat skills and who carry daggers in their garters and are absolutely lethal, but are still having to... Was that you? No, what was that? Something just went bing. It was like a fairy has appeared in the studio. What was that? What is that? It wasn't me. It absolutely wasn't me. It was the sound of a a computer doing a thing. Going bing, yeah. But it wasn't me because my computer is on silent. And it doesn't make that noise anyway. I think we... I think it's a message from the other side. Okay, it's a message to say, let's play a clip. Let's play a clip. Mr Bennett, have you heard that Netherfield Park is occupied again? By a Mr Bingley, <laughs> a young, single man of large fortune. Mrs Long says his income is four or five thousand a year. He is attending the village dance tonight. How does this concern our warrior daughters? You know I mean for him to marry one of them. Daughters do not dance well with masticated brains, Mrs Bennet. You, sir, have already put them at a decided social disadvantage by insisting they do their combat training in China as opposed to Japan. The Chinese deadly arts have no equal... I, for one, betrayed nothing for my Shaolin training. You mustn't speak like that, Lizzie. I should like to go to the dance. Do you think Mr Bingley's handsome? <laughs> with his income, Lydia, you'd think him handsome if he had half a zombie face. <laughs> Well, I suppose if we all go... No, I don't care to be paraded like a herd of heifers at a farm auction. That's because you're the cow who's least proficient in the art of tempting the other sex. On the plus side, you know, nice performances from um, Lily James as Elizabeth, Sam Riley is quite dour as uh, Mr Darcy, I quite liked him. Sally Phillips is, you know, raises a giggle as Mrs Bennett, Matt Smith... Gamely gormless as uh, Parson Collins and Charles Dance, who I could, you could frankly watch and listen to all day. On the downside, um, Burstiers can't quite figure out how to solve the mashup problem, which is how seriously to take either element. Um, you know, do you play do you play it straight or do you play it comically? And unfortunately, what that ends up doing is. Uh, it kind of blunts the romance and the horror and the comedy all at once. And so you can't, you keep wishing that it was one movie or t'other. I have to say, personally, I, I enjoyed Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter more, although I, that was not a movie that was well-received uh, by the rest of the press. I mean, it's that strange thing that it's a film which lacks bite, which is not something you can say about zombie mythology or, indeed, the writings of Jane Austen. So it's not without a certain degree of charm. And I, I, I must be honest about this. I saw it in a small screening room with two, um, two people behind me who laughed all the way through. And I think they were Austin experts. And they literally, like, all anyone had to do was to say a name of a character. And they were, they were in fits. And they really enjoyed it. And it may be that I'm just not smart enough. But I just really thought... The problem with this is you you can't quite figure out how straight to play this. And as a result, it's all going pear-shaped. Um, you remember uh, a few moments back when we were doing the show, we had... Uh, well, I remember a few moments back. Well, well sometimes that can be a challenge. <laughs> Douglas in Canberra was the guy who emailed uh, from uh, about his uh, being a wheelchair user, right? And he'd moved yes. to Australia. Yes, And he talked about the Dominion... Very Cinema nice email. Thank you, Sonny. Yeah. Well, Andy in Warwickshire uh, has got in touch to say, I'm pleased to report that the Dominion Cinema in Edinburgh is still family-owned. The bow-tied gentleman was my uncle Derek Cameron. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, he's no this, longer this with us. This is since the, that email was read out. He's got in touch to say this. Yes. 
if he'd sent it before, it would be uncanny. Exploding black holes could have made it possible. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but his son, uh, his sons and daughter still run the cinema and continue to show the level of personal customer service that he did. That's brilliant. So, uh, what, well, and the name of the cinema is? The Dominion Cinema in Edinburgh, family run and clearly been doing a great service for their customers for a very long time. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. What a, what a great email. Andy, thanks for the text. Douglas, again, thank you for the uh, for the original email. Uh, is it time? I think it certainly is. Uh, we've got some patter, some 1960s patter in just a moment. But first, DVD of the week. <laughs> you nearly forgot that, didn't you? No, no, no. I was I... doing a dramatic pause. Oh. How would I forget? I've got a script. Oh, okay. Got you script. script this? Yes. You write this down? Now, nothing says I love you like a roaring fire, a bottle of wine, and a brand new shelving unit, hand built by your paramour, to house your DVD of the week collection. Come Valentine's Day, if you find yourself without a new shelving unit, perhaps it's time to reconsider your options. Clearly, your partner doesn't understand you or your needs. Your mum was right about him after all. Move on, or her. Move on. Well done. Well saved. Move in with your wittertainment, exquisite collection of DVDs. Last week, Mark chose Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. Of course he did. What will he go for this time? James Gordon says, I really enjoyed Bill in the cinema, so we'll probably give that a go on DVD. Ben Keeler says, I myself will go for Sam Fuller's Fixed Bayonets, but Mark will obviously choose Crimson Peak. Stuart Yates, it's going to be Bill or Crimson Peak, but I'll settle for the perfect date movie, which is The Mutilator. I've not seen it. It may not be any good, but all relationships should go through a slasher horror test. If she respects your twisted taste, she's a keeper. Paul Crossland has to be... Do that, sorry, just do that again. If she respects your twisted taste, she's a keeper. And Paul Crossland says, has to be Crimson Peak. It's GDT on top form, creating a beautiful breathing and bloody experience. I think you're right, Paul. Let's find out what is DVD of the week. It is Crimson Peak because, um, I, you know, I love Guillermo del Toro and you were kind of lukewarm about this film. I just didn't think it was as fabulous as you did, that's all. Yeah, um, I think it's one of those films that bears repeat viewing and the more you, the more you look at it, the more you see in it. The design is absolutely ravishing. It's got that kind of overheated gothic literature sense as opposed to, you know, just gothic uh, cinema, although it does obviously... To some extent, it nods its hat towards, you know, those Poe adaptations. Uh, great performances. I loved Tom Hiddleston in it. I thought, she, I thought he was you know, absolutely terrific. And I found the story gripping and rich and romantic and ripe and all those other words that begin with a heart. Ripe, um, hey? Yeah. And I, I re- and hammy. Well, no, you see, I, I would say hammery as opposed to hammy, although actually hammery now implies that it's got a kind of cardboard feel to the set, and it hasn't. I mean, the, the, you do feel that the house is a living, breathing entity, you know, perched atop this uh, Lake District pile where the red is oozing out of the ground like some kind of return of the repress. I could, honestly, I could, so I could watch it and talk about it. Or, yeah, yeah. However, I would like to say that Bill is very funny as well. Okay, thank you very much indeed. So, uh, right at the very beginning of the podcast, we were talking about your French horn experience and the fact that you're quite a, 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 a French horner. <laughs> That's not... It's not... What is the word? Hornist, must be. Hornerer? Horn, no. horn player. It must be just be horn player. French horn... It will be something boring like that, won't it? Yes. French horn player. Horn de Francais. You're very good at it. And uh, we so we played a little bit of Flanders as well. We played sort of the first half of Ill Wind based on a little bit of Mozart and some fine words. So uh, we're going to sign off now. This is our sign-out 
sign off. Yeah, sign signing off. out. We're signing out and signing off. Uh, and it's not going to be us next week. It's uh, the other guys, Dave and Robbie, you know. If you want that sort of thing. Yeah. Might be okay. They know a bit, but they don't know that much, in my opinion. <laughs> anyway. And they probably won't be playing stuff like this. <laughs> I found a concern of a body that came this way. I challenged the playing the horn, but early the day to my utter dismay, it had totally vanished away. This is the type of radio energy I like. <laughs> I that's a patter song. That's a rap. That is. Flanders and Swan doing that a That is fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. I do think that one day when we're off, rather than getting in, you know, subs. Yeah. We should just play... Get in Flanders and get Swan. Get in Flanders and Swan. Get an album yes. of Flanders and Swan. Get that album of Gerard Hoffnung addressing the Oxford Union yes. and, and just play that. And that would be delightful. And Hoffnung, who famously said, I'm, I'm Gerard Hoffnung. Gerard, after my father, and Hoffnung, after Gerard. Yes. And I think uh, the only thing is it would be slightly... Five Live would be slightly off its brief of doing news and sport if we just played comedy records, but still... It's a fine idea. Mark, I wish you a very good half-term, by I the wish way. you a very good half-term as well. Thank you very much indeed. And I'll see you bright and chipper once Dave and Robbie have done their thing. Yeah, I'm going to have fewer teeth the next time I've seen you. You're going to be in a fight? No, I'm going to the dentist. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.